Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. talked about how life was happening while it continued to happen so this meeting this episode let's go on on an island oasis let's go to the island of dr moreau where we can just relax and kind of get away from it all and and that's what that opening song suggested it's the island of dr moreau by the von hoffman orchestra and that's from the monster university pajama party available on itunes your idea of a vacation getaway is a little (laughs) different than mine's but of the islands we're going to visit, I'm not sure which one I'd, I'd want to visit more. Maybe the 77 version, because that's got Barbara Carrera. So Yeah, you know what? I think uh, my opinions are going to surprise you on this episode. So we, we are going to talk about three versions of The Island of Dr. Moreau, the classic H.G. Wells novel made into movies. More movies than you actually might think. But uh, we're going to talk about Island of Lost Souls, The Twilight People, and... The Island of Dr. Moreau from the 70s. The Twilight People might surprise people. That's a title they I wasn't even aware of until a few months ago when I think you gave me the heads up that we had seen it and that it was just released on Blu-ray. And I had never heard of it before. I was actually very pleasantly surprised with that one. Yeah, so. that is a lot of fun. That's and even fun. though it doesn't officially give credit to H.G. Wells, it, it does. Yes, obviously it does. Well, let's call this meeting to order then. Welcome to episode 23. Can you believe it? 23. We're closing in on 25. Yes, yes. Let's welcome some new members. Do a quick roll call here. We welcome, and when we say welcome, we're talking about the Facebook group, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Lance Lumley, Bill Fisher Jr., Forrest Sellers, Anthony Walker, Beto Gudi Sanchez, and Yasmin Angarola. Angarola. I did not not realize she had joined. That name's familiar. Why do we? How do we know that name? I don't know. Yeah, I I am waiting, of course, to see Stella Angarola join the club. It'll happen. It'll happen sooner or later. That that cute little monster blanket she has is set her on the right path. Yes. Welcome everyone to the uh, Classic Horror Club. Let's start out with some old business. We have a few items from from last time. 
We wondered if Curse of Frankenstein had ever been released on Blu-ray, and it has. It has just been in the UK, though. Yeah. There has not been a United States release of that. It's available. You can get it from Amazon, but it has not had an official U.S. release. It's part of that crazy rights issues with the Hammer films. Probably. You'll never get a complete set here in the States, unfortunately. You're going to have to pick and choose, and, and uh, it's not going to look nice and clean on your on your DVD shelf, unfortunately. We failed terribly when we couldn't remember when Christopher Lee died. Just so that doesn't leave us uh, all hanging, it was June 7th, 2015, that he passed away. Doesn't seem that long ago. No, it doesn't. Time flies. Time flies. I mentioned that I thought Bob Cobert did the music for Burn Offerings. He, of course, is uh, one of the colleagues of Dan Curtis with Dark Shadows and all of that. And he did do the music for Burn Offerings, just like I thought he did. We also wondered which of the two Colossal Man movies took place in Las Vegas. We said Amazing Colossal Man, but then second guessed, but that was what it was, The Amazing Colossal Man. I believe that was in reference to them having the world premiere of the movie in Las Vegas. And that makes sense now, since that's where the circus end. But, you know, since the other one is technically a sequel, technically it could have taken place in Las Vegas as well. He had gone, it was south. He had gone through yeah, Vegas, right. I he guess. Had been yeah. south of the border, so yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't know why I have this noted. We were second guessing the wine tasting scene with Vincent Price that was so good. I, I guess we weren't sure that it was from Tales of Terror, even though we had covered that in an episode, and it was indeed Tales of Terror. I just, I always get that confused with the other one. Tales of Terror, Twice Told Tales, and another one, something of horrors, or yeah, there there are several um, anthologies that came out that do kind of blend together a little bit. Tales of Terror is that that great scene, the wine tasting scene. And speaking of Vincent Price, we had done the Vincent Price tag game that we were uh, challenged in, and we talked about movies with house in the title. Just because I am like this, I had to look up and see, actually, what movies there were that had House in the title. There are seven of them. Uh, would we venture to try to guess them all, or should I just read them? Go, go ahead and read them. Okay, I'm so... in my head here. So. Yeah, House of Seven Gables from 1940. I, that one I would have forgot about. That yeah. is an excellent film, though. Yeah. House of Wax, 53, I'm sure that's one we thought of. House of Usher, 1960. House of Thousand Dolls, which I know I mentioned, 1967. If you count it Madhouse, 1974, Uh, it's house in the title, technically. technically, maybe, yeah. yeah. Uh, And that's not even counting all of the television shows he did that were like CBS Playhouse or something. We're not counting those, but anyway. Uh, House of the Long Shadows, 1983, and Bloodbath at the House of Death. In I would have forgot about Bloodbath so, of the House of Death. That's, those are seven. Just, that, that's a bit of a rough one anyway. I've never seen that one. It's an anthology, I think, but it, I think that's like 84, I yes, think. Yes, 84. Yeah, yeah it's, if I remember correctly, he only has a, a small scene in it, and it's, it wasn't bad. I would go back and watch it. Yeah, what's the other one from about that time? It's another anthology, and he's just briefly in it. It's uh, it's called he, Escapes, isn't it? Where he plays well, that, but also uh, another one. I, why am I thinking it's like a southern movie? Uh, it oh. came out on Blu-ray not too long ago. Yeah, I know what you're talking yeah. about. So, yeah, there, yeah, yeah, there were several there where 
basically he's there for name recognition and and I wouldn't say he collected a paycheck because Vincent Price continued to just love and do what he did much like Boris Karloff they didn't need the money they just loved acting and loved doing that so part of old business is uh, listening to our feedback from voicemails or reading any emails that we get we have quite a few this time so I want to get into it so our episode is 10 hours long we invite you also to leave voicemail like the the people uh, did for this episode the number that you can do that is 616-649-2582 that's 616-649-CLUB hi guys this is rob kelly from the fire and water podcast network i'm calling you about the uh, vincent price well it's not a vincent price contest it's a halloween contest i'm calling about your vincent price slash uh, Hammer Horrors episode. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for playing my previous message on the air about the boring presidential history stuff. I appreciate you indulging me like that. Um, like I said, I really enjoyed the show. I uh, grew up on the Hammer films, watching them on my local UHF station on Sundays. I guess like a lot of people, uh, they would play Universal Horror movies, Abbey Costello movies, the Blondie movies, uh, and the Hammer stuff. I saw all that stuff growing up, and it was uh, pretty, pretty cool. Um one notation I thought I would make about the Universal movies as compared to the Hammer movies is that I thought it was kind of interesting that as Universal's horror movies went on, uh, they got more kid-friendly. They kind of got kind of sillier and more more just kind of family-friendly as opposed to the literate, grisly horror of James Whale. They got more goofy and silly, and Hammer did kind of the opposite. I think the earlier films are a little more acceptable for younger viewers, and then, of course, as they went on, they had more violence, more nudity, and so they kind of went the opposite direction of Universal. Universal went more kid-friendly, Hammer went more kind of adult-friendly. So anyway, that said, um, in regards to your contest, um, the film that I saw for the first time this month uh, was actually a Vincent Price movie, just happens to be a Vincent Price movie, and that is Roger Corman's The Pit and the Pendulum from 1961. And I had never seen it before. I'd seen a lot of the uh, Corman Poe cycle, but never that one. And so I watched it. It's got Vincent Price, of course, Barbara Steele, John Kerr. And I liked it. It was pretty good. Um, it's got a screenplay by Richard Matheson. You really can't beat that. And he, of course, just invents an entire story because the Poe story, uh, the original Pit in the Pendulum, is only like 15 pages. So he crafted like a whole kind of almost Scooby-Doo-esque plot about Barbara Steele and the doctor that are sort of, spoiler alert everybody, that are in on this thing to scare Vincent Price to death so they can get his castle. So it's not a bad movie. There's a bunch of flashbacks and dream sequences that are really well done. They're kind of done in this hazy, weird, dreamlike way with monochromatic color. Those are really effective. There's a scene of Barbara Steele crawling out of her coffin, which is really, really good. I like all that stuff. Unfortunately, even though the movie's only about 90 minutes, there's a big chunk that's just talking. Just the characters in their in their little frippery outfits just kind of gabbing on and on and on. And that, that stuff isn't terribly interesting. But once the plot really kicks in, it's not bad. Uh, you get to see Vincent Price play like he's going mad, which, of course, he could do in his sleep. And a Barbie steel is always fun to look at. The only other problem I have with the pit and the pendulum is when we finally get to the pendulum, the titular pendulum, the character who is subjected to the torture is kind of a side character and not one of the ones that you'd really want to see get it. So when when we finally get to the big set piece, you don't really care all that much 
about whether this person gets it or not because you haven't really cared about them that much to this point. So I wish, if you've seen the movie, if anybody's seen the movie, you don't want to talk about it. I don't want to necessarily spoil it in case you do play this on the air. But anyway, it's not a bad movie. Um, it moves along in a pretty, pretty brisk place, pretty brisk pace. And of course, Barbie Steele and Vincent Price are always fun to watch, and there's some good dream sequences. So, otherwise, not bad. Uh, not my, certainly not my favorite of the Poe Corman movies, but not my least favorite either. That would probably be too Lygia. Anyway, that's it. I'm really enjoying the show. I'm glad so good. My pal Chris Franklin turned me on to it. I just think it's great. I love your logo, by the way. As a graphic designer, I just have to point that out. Your show logo is terrific. Anyway. Uh, it'd be cool if I won something in the contest, but even if I don't, that's cool, too. I really am enjoying the show, and uh, I'll see you guys uh, next month. Thanks. Bye. And, oh, and happy Halloween. Thank you, Rob. We appreciate your call, and gosh, your enthusiasm for our show just really, really makes me happy. So I'm glad that you enjoy us, and we'll we'll try to keep entertaining you. Um, your call, obviously, you mentioned it, was an entry into our contest, and if you'll recall, we only asked that you do one of two things, either watch a movie you've never seen and give us a little report about it, which you did, or post your home video collection for us to see the mountains of DVDs and Blu-rays that you have, many which may be unwrapped. So you're, you're definitely in an entry. Thank you. And keep listening to see if you are also a winner. Hey, Richard and Jeff, it's Chris Franklin from the Supermates and the House of Franklin Stein. Thanks so much for Plugging the show uh, this season, I really appreciate it. Uh, of course, uh, we spread the word about the Classic Horror Club podcast on our show as well, so it's a it's a mutual love fest there, so that's great. I just wanted to call in and say how much I really enjoyed your Hammer episode. Uh, you picked three of the best, three of my favorites. In fact, Horror of Dracula is my favorite Dracula film, and Hammer's The Mummy is my favorite mummy film. So, uh, and and... Of course, Curse of Frankenstein's no slouch either, but I, I do rank the first two Universal ones a little bit higher, uh, but just barely. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I would, as far as what, uh, Steve Turk came up with for the battles, uh, between, uh, Lee and Cushing there, uh, I would say that, uh, I'd of course give Curse of Frankenstein to Cushing. That's his movie. He's fantastic. Uh, Dracula, that's one I would probably just have to call a tie. I know that's cheating in a way, but I would have to say that uh, I love uh, Cushing's Van Helsing. I mean, he is the the greatest Van Helsing of all. Uh, and Lee, Christopher Lee's my favorite Dracula, so it's hard for me to uh, to pick between the two of them. I think Christopher Lee does a lot with the little time he's given, and he is closer to the the novel Dracula than than Lugosi. And I love Lugosi, but I just like the the evil bastard uh, Dracula that Christopher Lee portrays uh, better. Uh, for The Mummy, I'm going to go with Lee. I think uh, his his miming ability in that role, I mean, the fact that he never – well, he speaks in the flashback, of course, uh, but when he's the actual mummified uh, Karis, he is uh, just fantastic. That The way he acts with his body and his eyes in particular – is, is just amazing. And that is a really fantastic film, and I think it's 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 kind of underrated. I think it distilled all the best qualities of all the Universal Mummy movies into a action-packed, fast-paced uh, thrill ride. I really enjoy it. It's it's great. So I really enjoyed this episode. I always do, but I'm a sucker for Hammer, and uh, you guys nailed it. And uh, just want to say, I know this will air afterwards. Uh, 
you know, on your Dr. Moreau episode, which I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to. But I just want to say happy Halloween and thanks for, uh, thanks for keeping the club going and, and letting us all in. It's a heck of a, it's a heck of a show and I really enjoy it. Bye. And thank you, Chris, for that uh, fabulous voicemail. Our heads are swelling over here as we're listening, but actually it makes us really, really uh, proud of the show and, and happy. You know, we started the show almost two years ago. Jeff was the one that, that had the idea to do it, and, and I said, let's let's go for it. Let's do something different. And I'm, I'm loving the fact that we do this show. It's, it's, you know, if there was one listener out there, I wouldn't care. But as our listenership is growing and we're seeing the, the club grow on Facebook, it makes me happy. It makes my, my, my heart all warm and fuzzy. Me too. Chris also is in the contest because he posted on the Facebook page about uh, a movie. What was the movie? Horror Hotel. Horror Hotel. And uh, classic. Classic with uh, Christopher Lee. Um, so he had posted about his experience watching that. So, again, stay tuned and we will let you know... Uh, the results of the contest. Yes, there were three prizes and we have two entries. So we'll uh, keep you waiting and see what happened. All right, another voicemail. This one came a little more recently and we haven't heard from him in a while. It's the our new father friend, Jonathan Angarola. Let's uh, see if he gets us caught up with uh, what's been going on with him. Hey guys, it's Jonathan. Just wanted to check in. I know I've been MIA for a little while with a newborn at home. Although, officially, I don't think she's a newborn anymore. I think she's just an infant. But yes, little Stella is two and a half months now. And, um, you know, I really appreciated the shout out to Stella uh, in your last podcast. It was adorable. And I played it for her. She heard it. And I'm sure. Um, she uh she got the good vibes you guys were sending our way so that was very sweet uh we also thank you so much for the uh blanket uh i know that came from um you uh from uh, rich um and um jeff and carla and that was amazing it's adorable and as it gets colder she's really enjoying her blanket so thanks guys thanks so much um yeah so my halloween plans halloween season plans were you know, I had to get in my October um, films uh, where I could, mostly on my commutes in and out of the city, um, <laughs> um, and on my flight to Orlando because I was out there for four days for a conference. So um, for this Halloween, my goal was to hit some of my horror film blind spots. So uh, these are kind of the films I hit up during the season. So I want to get to some of the mummy, the universal mummy sequels from the forties as Rod, uh, over at the bloody pit has been doing, um, you know, the mummy sequels among, actually they're doing all the universal sequels of the forties. So I saw the mummy's hand, the mummy's curse and the mummy's ghost. Enjoyed them all. Um, nice little chillers as, uh, Rod, uh, had described them at one time. Uh, I really enjoyed them. The only thing that took me out of a couple of the films is when there would be a death and it was treated very casually and folks went right back to smiling and being, you know, hunky-dory right afterwards. And that kind of would take me out. I mean, this didn't happen in every instance during these films, but when it did, kind of took me out of out of the films. I mean, I don't expect perfect realism when it comes to these, <laughs> to all these honor films, obviously. But that would be one complaint. But I did I did really enjoy them. It was also a lot of fun to see John Carradine pop up in The Mummy's Ghost, I believe it was. I did not know he was in that, and it's always fun when, 
when he pops up, he's got such a distinctive look um, and presence. So, uh, going on, I saw Burn, Witch, Burn, which I had never seen. They covered on the B-movie cast, actually, a while back, and that's a film I've always wanted to check out. Um, kind of, I kind of thought it was interesting that they took witch-related themes and kind of merged it with this mid-century academic setting. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Peter, uh, Peter Wimgard was great. And, and I always forget that he played Clytus. Clytus, I think his name is. In, um, his character's name in um, the 1980 Flash Gordon film, which is always a guilty pleasure of mine. I love that film. So colorful and so fun, and he just chews the scenery in that one. Uh, I promised myself I would see another Corman Poe film, so I saw House of Usher. Uh, which I thought was pretty solid. I enjoyed seeing Vincent Price in, um, like, bleach blonde hair. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, I also wanted to see, catch a few more Margariti films. So I watched The Long Hair of Death and Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. I probably enjoyed the former a little more than the latter. I enjoyed both, but the, um, I thought the, um, Long Hair of Death just embraced the gothic setting just, I mean, he just oozed gothic, a gothic feel and look. Um, and Barbara Steele is in it, which is always great. The men in it were total creepers, but I guess that's the point. Um, great score, too. Great score for that. Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. I thought, uh, I didn't think it quite came together. There were a lot of themes and plot elements kind of thrown out, but it didn't quite come together for me at the end. But that's just me. Um, also wanted to catch a few more Amicus anthology films that I hadn't not yet seen. So I watched The House of Trip Blood and Asylum. Both were pretty solid. I probably enjoyed Asylum a little more. Um, and, uh, creepy, uh, with a decent sense of humor. Um, and I know Amicus is known, you know, probably best known for their anthology work. So I enjoyed those. Then I want to see something from Tygon. That's another, probably if you have Hammer, if Hammer are considered, you know, tops and then Amicus, I guess, Tiger comes third. And I think which Finder General. I'm not sure if I had seen any other films by that company. So I saw uh, Blood on the Devil's Claw, which I was alerted to by watching an episode of Trailers from Hell, where Joe Dante talked about it. He kind of sold me on it. Very creepy, culty, uh, some witchcraft themes in that. That and, which, that and um, The Wicker Man, I think, would make a good double feature. So... Yeah, so there was that, and besides that, I just wanted to um, chime in on a few other um, uh, things that came up in the last podcast. Um, you mentioned getting an all-region Blu-ray player. I think, Rich, this is that for both of you recently got all-region Blu-ray players? Um, yes, I agree. I got one, I think it was last year, and I've mostly been taking advantage of that with Hammer Films, UK releases of Hammer Films. Um, I'm hoping that it'll come into play with some releases in the future. But, uh, yeah, the all-region player is great. But, yes, mostly related to Hammer. Um, I also wanted to say happy birthday to Stephen Turek. I know he recently turned 50, I think. Yes, so happy birthday, Steve, uh, turning 50. That's a big birthday. I'll reach out in a few years. So not far behind you, buddy. So um, otherwise, I hope you guys are doing well. I'm excited about the upcoming episode. Um, I think the films you're doing are all related. Go back to Island of Dr. Moreau, I believe. Um, I've read the book, uh, which is great. I've seen Island of Lost Souls many times, uh, which, you know, has been probably covered in 
many a podcast and many a blog, but that's a great film. Um, I think without Charles Lawton, it would be a solid entry into the horror genre, but Charles Lawton just takes it up three notches in my book. He's just amazing. Um, also, the make- makeup in that is obviously a standout. I don't know if Jack Pierce did the makeup for that. I'm not sure, but the makeup is uh, is pretty awesome in that as well. Um, the other two films you're covering, I don't think I've seen, and I don't think, and I have not seen the 1990s of Al Kilmer uh, film uh, version of Island of Dr. Moreau. I hear it's something to behold, and it's a big mess. And I believe it's a documentary that came out about the making of that film, uh, which I think came out in the mid-90s. Um, but anyway, um, otherwise, yeah, Halloween season was good. Uh, Stella enjoyed it. She watched a little bit of uh, Bride of Frankenstein with me, a little bit of House of Haunted Hill. <laughs> I think she was kind of mesmerized by a little bit of it, um, trying to ensure that she absorbed some of these horror vibes early on. Um, but, yeah, hope you guys are doing well and looking forward to the next podcast. And, um, yeah, I will uh, I'll see you guys soon. And, um and I'll see you on uh, in Facebook land. And I I am hoping to post a little photo with her with her monster blanket. And thanks again, um, you guys and Carla for uh, for sending that to us for Stella. That was really super sweet. Okay, I babble. I rambled on long enough. I'm a little sleep deprived, as you can probably tell. We'll talk to you. <laughs> bye bye, guys. Thank you, Jonathan. That I think counts as several entries into the contest. However. To be fair, we're just going to count that as one. That is our three uh, entries for each of our three prizes, but who knows? We may have other other people. Um, we know that Steve Turek is leaving us a, a message after we record, but before we post the episode. So I think we might have to wait to announce the winners to see if uh, Mr. Turek should be included in the drawing. Should we announce on the Facebook group uh, as soon as we get that last voicemail from Steve. Yeah, let's let's wait and, and see what he has to say. We'll announce it on the Facebook page, reach out to everyone individually too. Then we can always just, again, make a formal announcement in case you miss it on the Facebook page. We'll mention who the winners are in, in uh, next month's episode. Anyway, thank you, Jonathan, for the reports on all those movies. You saw some great movies, I think. Uh, the one that caught my ear in particular was Asylum. I just, I love that movie. It's probably my favorite anthology film, my favorite Amicus film, and it sounded like you were pretty fond of it, so that's great. You also left us another message, Jonathan. Let's listen to that. That's more specific to our Hammer episode, and you weigh in on uh, our Cushing Lee battles that we had for each of the three movies. And uh, let's see how you lined up with our opinions from the last episode. Hey, guys, it's Jonathan again. I realize I would be remiss if it, I did not weigh in on your Hammer episode for October which was great, as usual. Um, you guys, as usual, have great insight and discussion and trivia on these films and the time in which they were made. Um, so it was a really, really great episode. Um, you know, I would have to say from my standpoint, um, Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, The Mummy, they're all great. Um, uh, all Terrence Fisher films, so they're all going to be... Um, it's all going to have that Terrence Fisher style, which is, I would become more and more recognizable as that hammer run, horror run would go into the 1960s. 
Uh, obviously, you have Leon Cushing, I would say, if I was going to vote for each of the films, as Steve did. Uh, in Curse of Frankenstein, I would give the nod to Peter Cushing, even though Lee is great as the creature. Um, but, um, his, uh, his picture Frankenstein is just, he's great. Pretty lonesome, <laughs> but he just plays it so well. Um, for Dracula, oh gosh, I love, um, I love Peter Cushing as Van Helsing, um, but I'm going to get the, give the nod to Lee for Horror of Dracula just because, um, his, um, you know, he plays uh, Dracula with just such, oh God, what is it? I mean, he's very little dialogue, but just such, such command and such presence, um, and, um, super creepy, of course, and charismatic. Uh, as much as I love Van Helsing, uh, Cushing's Van Helsing, but we'll revisit him in many other um, Dracula films. Uh, Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. For The Mummy, I have to give it to Christopher Lee again. Again, Cushing is great in that, um, but his mummy, uh, his interpretation of the mummy is just so menacing and comes with such force and such power. I find him pretty frightening as the mummy in this film. Um, and, you know, yeah, almost like a force of nature. Um, and as far as if I had to pick one of the three that I revisit the most often, I don't know. It's, it's very close. I mean, I revisit all three. I have the TCM four disc set, not on Blu-ray. It's not available on Blu-ray on DVD, uh, that has several of these, but I have, I guess the mummy, uh, I think it's the combination um, of things. Also, that great score, and Chris really is the mummy, but the score is spectacular. Uh, but they're all great, so it's hard to pick. I hope you guys do other Hammer episodes in the future, because the ni- 1960s was such a great run, uh, not to mention the non-Dracula and the non-Frankenstein films, like Plague of Zombies, obviously. Yes, so hopefully you guys will cover other... Um, Hammer films, like I said, I enjoy, I really enjoy, some of my favorites are the non, I mean, I love the Dracula and the Frankenstein films, certain ones in particular, but, um, yes, uh, films like Plague of Zombies, uh, The Reptile, Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, these are all really solid. Plague of Zombies might be one of my favorites, might be my favorite, although it's tough. Um, I also enjoy some of the stuff in the early, uh, uh, that they Hammer put out. I know that it's a, kind of a different bag, but, some of the Hammer stuff in the 1970s I enjoy as well. Um, so, uh, anyway, we can go more on that another time. But, again, great episode. Keep up the good work. And uh, looking forward to what's next. Okay, thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you once again, Jonathan, for uh, catching up. Stella's got enough hair that she looks like she's about 10 when I see the pictures <laughs> of her. So, But she is uh, obviously... We understand, you know, she's she's going to be taking up some of your time. So we're thankful that you took the time to give us a call and uh, catch up. And glad you got a few Halloween films in during the month of October. I remember those days, and you got to take those films whenever you can get them, even if it's in the middle of the night. Hopefully, you'll you'll have some more films or a film to uh, try to squeeze in here when we do the contest. So uh, thank you again for for calling in. You know what? We're going to take a break, and when we come back. I think we have some movies to talk about. We're going to start off with uh, a little history about H.G. Uh, Wells and the novel and our first movie, Island of Lost Souls from 1932. Hello, Rich. Hello, Jeff. This is Steve Turk. 
I'm trying to give you my feedback soon for the Island of Dr. Moreau, H.G. Well movies that you picked out. So I wanted to talk to you guys first about last month's shows. I really enjoyed the podcast. You guys have always, as usual, give great feedback on the different movies that you guys discuss. The one thing I want to hold both of you to, though, when you did your Vincent Price challenge, which um, Jonathan and I both accepted your challenge and, and have done, both of you guys did not pick a movie for Vincent Price to replace somebody because you said, oh, we can't replace anybody because you're so classic and stuff like that. And I'm going to give you guys both the benefit of that because you both did your questions live, so to speak, where you were getting them and then trying to come up with answers where Jonathan and I had the advantage of having time to ponder. But I still think you guys should have to pick movies for Vincent Price to replace somebody um, just because I don't think you guys should be able to weasel your way out, so to speak, and say, oh, we can't imagine Vincent Price taking over for anybody. And it's kind of coincidental that Jonathan and I both picked Donald Pleasant's character, Dr. Loomis, in Halloween without even knowing that we were both going to pick that movie. And again, it doesn't take anything away from Donald Pleasant's, but it's just, it'd be kind of curious to see what Vincent Price would have been like in that role. And I think that's the way, you know, maybe you guys could look at it. Instead of saying, oh, Vincent Price would be better than this person, would Vincent Price, what would Vincent Price have brought to that part unlike somebody else? And maybe that could help you guys come out with a, a movie each. Otherwise, I'll be giving you guys feedback on the different movies as I go through them. <laughs> you guys have an interesting selection of movies for this month. I gotta say, you go from one of my all-time favorite movies to... I don't know what I'm getting into when I get to that 1996 Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, it'd be interesting to see. I've only ever seen two of these movies before. The Island of the Lost Souls I've seen many times. And I've seen the 1977 version of The Island of Dr. Monroe with uh, Burt Lancaster. But it's been several decades since I last saw it. So and I'm interested to see when I see that now how my opinions might have changed from when I saw it as like a 10-year-old. Uh, Terror is a Man I've never seen, and The Twilight People I've never seen. I'm kind of curious to see what both of those would be like. And like I said, I'm very interested to see what my opinion is going to be like with the 96 version with Martin Brando and Kilmer. I've heard nothing good about that movie at all, so I'm going in with some trepidation. Uh, so we'll see how it all plays out. All right, talk to you guys later when I give you the feedback for the different movies. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>
Get everything ready. For what? This time I'll burn out all the animal and I'll... No. I'll make her completely human. Before we dive into H.G. Wells, you know what? We're going to do old business <laughs> that's, what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes old? The other Vincent Price anthology film from the 1980s, we looked it up to the miracle of the internet, uh, From a Whisper to a Scream, also known as The Offspring, which came out in 1987. So it came out a year after Escapes and three years after the... Bloodbath at the House of Death. Is that, is that the name of it? Uh, that one's got a mouthful. But uh, yeah, that actually, from A Whisper to a Scream, was technically his last horror film. He did, a, I mean, I guess there's Dead Heat and there's Edward Scissorhands, but that's really kind of the last of what I consider, anyway, his traditional horror films, because that same year he did The Whales of August, which is one of his best films. Supposedly, I have yet to see that film, but I have it courtesy of an email that Jeff sent me that, hey, <laughs> Kino Lorber is having a sale, and I want your money to go to them. So, uh, and anyway, I wanted to share that we did pull that up. So. Yeah, and that's look how efficient we are. We're taking care of old business in the same episode. We are evolving, Richard. Exactly. We're becoming a machine. Well, you know, pretty, pretty soon we're going to be knowing the answers before we even know the questions. And there will be no need for old business. Exactly. Well, speaking of old business, uh, let's go back to 1932 and uh, a little film called Island of Lost Souls. But in fact, let's go even a little farther back because this is based on the novel by H.G. Wells. And it was written in 1896. And um, I've never read the original novel. I've got a collection of H.G. Wells, one of those wonderful, you know, leather-bound collections, but I've never had the time to read it. Uh, it. It sits on my mantle. It looks beautiful. Someday I will have the time to read it. One of the things I noted about the, the story as I was reading the description was uh, the main character, who, whose name changes in the movies quite often anyway, but in the original novel... It was Edward Prendick, uh, which is the role that became Edward Parker, for example, in the first movie we're going to talk about. So I, I can understand why that name didn't make it into the uh, adaptations, at least the ones we're covering here today. But I was surprised in my research to find that Island of Lost Souls was not the first adaptation there was a, uh, a silent film in 1913 called The Island of Terror um, that I believe is lost because I believe if it existed, it, it would still be, it'd be out there and I hadn't even heard of it. So I don't know for sure that it's lost, but if it, if it exists, it's not been released and it's in private collection. And then there was a German film in 1921. Uh, I do know that one is believed to be lost. So this was actually the third adaptation, and it did not use the title of the story. It became Island of Lost Souls. It technically was released at the very end of 1932, but did make its debut in New York on January 12th, 1933. So before we talk about the movie, I want to talk about what was happening at the time the movie was made. 1933. I went with that year because I think this is the movie 
that's the year that the movie became, you know, more widely released. And one of the big things that happened in 1932 was the repeal of Prohibition. Uh, the 21st Amendment was passed, repealing the 18th Amendment. We also had, uh, didn't realize that, I'm not surprised, I guess, I didn't realize that Japan had invented, they didn't invent the machine gun, but they invented a more modern version of the machine gun. It uh, did a thousand shots per minute. The Golden Gate Bridge started construction and uh, wouldn't be finished until 1937. The Dust Bowl started around this time as a result of poor farming practices. What, Richard? What what teams were in the Dust Bowl that year? (laughs) But I'm fine. You did that sound effect. (laughs) U.S. unemployment, of course. This was the Depression. It reached its highest level at 25%, or one in three people were unemployed. Yikes. I found this interesting. The very first drive-in movie theater opened in 1933 in um, New Jersey. Uh, I think it was listed as Camden, but then I read some other things where it, 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 there's like it was a suburb or something of that. So there's some dispute as far as what city it actually existed in. But it was called the Park Inn Theater. Uh, I believe it, it was able to have uh, over 300 people. So it was a fairly big theater. The very first movie they played was Wives Beware, a 1932 British comedy that I'm sure really played well. Oh, it brought those teenagers out, I'm sure. (laughs) Interesting that there's very little information on when this closed. There's not an official date known, but it is long gone. And the sad thing is there's not even any recognition on the site. Uh, Apparently a furrier store is there now. It'd be nice if there was like a plaque or something that said this is the site of the first drive-in movie theater. That was a major part of American culture. I would, it's sad that that's not recognized. Anyway, Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. The Loch Ness Monster was sighted for the first time on May 2nd in modern days. Uh, the chocolate chip cookie was invented. I would have thought it was invented before 1933. Uh, Monopoly was invented in 1933. A few famous people were born that year. Willie Nelson, Joan Collins, Larry King, Michael Caine, and Roman Polanski. Uh, FDR became president or or was um, uh, inaugurated as president. And uh, some of the movies that came out that year. A little film called King Kong. I wonder what ever happened to that film. The Invisible Man, The Ghoul with Boris Karloff, The Vampire Bat, Murders in the Zoo, Mystery of the Wax Museum... And in a more lighthearted note, the Marx Brothers in Duck Soup and Laurel and Hardy in Sons of the Desert. Uh, a movie called Cavalcade, which I've never seen, won Best Picture of the Year and Best Director for Frank Lloyd. Charles Lawton actually won for Best Actor for The Private Life of Henry VIII, I'm assuming. I have seventh, but that doesn't make sense. I would say Henry VIII. In any you don't case, know your Roman numerals? Well, I, I put down seven, but I'm questioning that. That's a movie, I, I have to admit, I've never even heard of that film. So, uh, And I'm pretty familiar with classic films. So, that's, so would this have been the same year if he were nominated for Island of Lost Souls? If Island of Lost Souls was released uh, in a theater in December of 32, then it would be the same year that The Private Life was released. So Island of Lost Souls would have technically been eligible. And Catherine Hepburn won for Best Actress for a movie called Morning Glory, which I have also not seen. And I love classic films, so I was not familiar with either one of those. 
Um, so that's what was happening in the rest of the world in 1933. But, of course, our world is taking place on, as Jeff said at the start of the show, a, a nice little vacation getaway, uh, an island out in the middle of nowhere. I wonder if we could do this. Normally we do a synopsis of each movie, and these three movies are basically a variation on the actual novel. I kind of, if you don't mind, and I hate to rely on Wikipedia, but they have a nice little synopsis of the novel. I thought if we could read that, we could sort of talk about the elements that each movie used from the original novel, uh, because I think it's interesting. It talks about some of the themes, and I think some of the movies pick up on the themes more than others, and maybe just using this as a re- the novel as a reference point, Absolutely, even yeah. though we haven't read it, but you know, you can believe everything you read on Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it, the story is basically uh, a narration of this Edward Prindick, and he's a shipwrecked man who's rescued by a passing boat, uh, and he's left on the island home of Dr. Moreau. Dr. Moreau is a mad scientist who creates human-like hybrid beings from animals via vivisection. Uh, the novel deals with a number of philosophical themes, including pain and cruelty, moral responsibility, human identity, and human interference with nature. Wells himself described it as an exercise in youthful blasphemy. So that's the source material. And Island of Lost Souls, the first movie we're talking about, how does it deal with those? Well, I will say up front that of the three films, I found this to be the most graphic and, and the most horrific i think because it it really deals with the vivisection more than the other films the other films come across more in the mad scientist range you know range in my opinion and i think it's important to note that hg wells was still alive at the time that this movie came out and he didn't like it he said it was too horrific that it 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 relied too much on the horror elements And, and they're very very present in this film the setup is essentially very much the same. You've got uh, Edward Parker in the you know the Edward Prendick role. Uh, he's played by Richard Arlen. He is uh, saved by a ship. Through some extra elements into the story, he is dropped off at the island of Doctor Moreau. Hey, can we talk about that a sec? Because that I. Well, first of all, I put in my Criterion collection, and it froze at a moment soon after the credits and by fast forwarding or pausing and stopping or whatever i finally got it to go but it picked up Uh, and so i missed a teeny little bit why did the captain of that ship throw him off that ship so that he could land on dr moreau's ship he challenged the captain because there is they're going to moreau's island and they've got animals and 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 such that are going to be used by dr moreau but there is someone on the ship who is with Mr. Montgomery, who is a hybrid. Uh, he looks very animalistic. And the captain, Captain uh, Davies, is, is beating him or something. And um, Mr. Parker intercedes and hauls off hitting the captain, you know, not realizing that probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. And uh, he ends up that's why he ends up hiding afterwards because he assaulted the captain and the captain, of course, none too happy with him, which is why then when they're at the dock, you know, the plan is that he's supposed to take Edward Parker to the next port of call, 
which Edward Parker had already relayed a message to his fiancée, uh, Ruth Thomas, played by Layla Hyams, that uh, he was, you know, he had been saved, his ship had, had been sunk or whatever, but that he had been found and that he was on his way home. But then when they're at that, uh, the island of Dr. Moreau, Captain Davies sees him and says, oh, by the way, you're getting off too, and throws him off because he was, he recognized him as the guy who hit him and said, no, he needs to go. And Correction. He threw off a dummy. Well, he, he, <laughs> yes, one of true. those dummies falling, the limbs true. flailing in positions that real bodies would never. This is true, flail, but yeah. but and and technically, you know, in his mind, well, it was a port of call, so he was fulfilling his duty. Now that was he was called out on it later on, saying, "Nope, that's not quite how it works." But uh, you know, Captain Davies is played by Stanley Fields, who looked familiar to me. It looked like I had seen him in other films before, but then when I, I went through his credits and I, I didn't recognize anything else he had done, he played, from the looks of his credits, he played kind of the rough guy. He had that rough guy look, and I, I don't think he was going to be a romantic lead in any movie, but surprisingly, actually, he, he didn't live too many years after this movie. He died in uh, 1941 at the age of 57 of a heart attack. Hmm. But uh, his career, not incredibly prolific, but he did do a lot of tough guy roles. So I don't know why I recognized him because I didn't recognize anything else he had done. Uh, I, I like this story element and none, neither of the other two movies has it where, you know, this guy is shipwrecked on an island and, you know, there's actually someone looking for him, someone coming to find him. I like that. The other two movies didn't have that. And I'm going to just get this up front right away. I'm not such a big fan of any of these movies. I find each of them to be a little bit slow and tedious until their finales. And I think their finales are terrific on all of them. But I, I have a trouble, and I want to read the book because I want to know, you know, is the book the same way? Are they following the book too closely? I just, there's a lot that doesn't work for me. I mean, you're stranded on an island, and, you know, these each of the characters doesn't really, I mean, they're concerned about getting off, but... At some point, they sort of become involved in Moreau's experiment. He shares with them what they're about, and sort of the point to get off the island is kind of lost. There's not really any forward development, I don't think. And I, I just, and I think, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, why is that? And I think maybe it's because we don't know enough about the shipwrecked character. Like, if we knew their background and that maybe they were into science as well, or they had an interest in the work that he's doing for some reason that would cause them to be distracted from wanting to get off the island and to stay and to learn about what he's doing. I just don't think there's much conflict. I think that I would agree with you as far as the Twilight people goes with that. I think that, it, you know, in this one here, of the three movies, I think it, this character is probably fleshed out the most in this first one. <clears throat> I agree that we don't know much about him. But at least there is that extra, you know, character development that he like. Okay, he's got a fiance. He's he's you know he's you know at least a little bit that he he's, he's coming to the aid of of these creatures that he doesn't find them necessarily offensive. He he's he's viewing them as different, especially on the ship. But he's also of the three because of that because you know a little bit more about him. He also comes across a little bit more as a cad because he's got a fiance, 
yet he falls in love with the Panther Woman. Right. When you know, which is Doctor Moreau's plan all along. Well, right? and I have a question about that. Is that true? Because he tells uh, the Panther Woman not to tell him about the law or the House of Pain. Yet he is quick to put them in a situation where they are alone together. So is it his plan all along? I got the vague impression that he wanted them sort of to mate to see what oh, yeah. kind of... Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that okay. was, that, That's why I said th- this movie of the three is the, is the more intense, I think, of the three films in that sense. And especially, this is a pre-code film. So they were, were pushing the envelope quite a bit in this movie. And because like, Edward Parker... Kind of comes across as a little bit of a bad guy because he's knowingly cheating on his fiance. You know he, you know, even though in the end technically he he gets reunited with his fiance and they go off in the sunset together. You know he did kind of, you know, on this island, you know, kind of go astray a little bit. So not that I'm judging, but I'm saying it. You know, we know a little bit more about this character. Not much, but we know a little bit more. You know, you've got some good cast in this one, too, that I think the Twilight people didn't necessarily have because of the fact that it was one of the films made in the Philippines. We'll talk more about it when we get to it. And whereas the 77 version definitely had some well-known cast members. But you've got Charles Lawton. I think Jonathan said it on his call to us. I mean, Charles Lawton is amazing as, as Dr. Moreau. He by far the best of these three films. Maybe a little over the top at times, but that's Charles Lawton. I don't think I... I haven't seen too many films of his, but every film I've seen, he tends to go a little over the top because that's just his persona, the way he presents himself. And he was very prolific um, in the horror genre and related genres. I mean, he did The Old Dark House, which we've talked about on the show in episode whatever we i can't remember the episode title but our one of our boris karloff episodes i believe the 39 version of hunchback of notre dame which i really want to revisit because we just saw halloween night we saw the original with lon cheney senior which had been a long time since i'd seen that uh the original mutiny and the bounty the canterville ghost the strange door with boris karloff he was an abbott and costello meet captain kid very prolific actor and I and I loved his portrayal very eccentric at times definitely evil just his overall appearance I think was much more maybe stereotypical bad guy look but I mean he just looked the part a lot more than than uh, the other two uh, actors uh, who played Moreau in the other two films that we that we're going to talk about and I loved Richard Arlen as Edward Parker. I mean, the only other horror-related film that he did was Lady and the Monster from 44, which we've also talked about um, on our Donovan's Brain episode. Of course, Kathleen Burke played the Panther Woman. She got stereotyped, actually, for playing this character. It hurt her in Hollywood. She didn't get too many parts after that. She was in Murders in the Zoo that same year, uh, which is an excellent film, another pre-code film that... Is very intense. Mr. Montgomery, we mentioned, played by Arthur Hole. Um, he did a few genre films around this same period. Uh, the Devil Doll with uh, Lionel Barrymore, which I love that film. Hunchback of Notre Dame from 39. Uh, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes with Basil Rathbone. 
And, uh, we, of course, we have to mention Bella Bela Lugosi uh, in his small role, yet great role, I think, as the sayer of the law. Sadly, I, I was reading on how much he got paid. He got only got paid $800. Now, he got paid less than everyone else who had uh, a key role in the film. But I got to think, it's like, well, he's also in a lot less of the film than everyone else. So I'm kind of thinking for what he did, which was essentially really one extended scene, $800 is not that bad, I don't think. But this, of course, you know, was coming right off his decision not to do Frankenstein. And, you know, of course, his career was taking a, a turn very, very quickly, unfortunately. So... Um, he was taking anything he could get, and so uh, I think Hollywood was already starting to kind of screw him over. And, and by paying him eight hundred, I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence with that because again, he has a smaller role, kind of looking almost like a Wolfman-like character as the Sayer of the Law. So I don't know. I I, I think he got a great cast, and and I uh, I've always loved this film, you know, and, and it was unavailable for quite a few years. When DVDs came out, it was announced as coming out on DVD, one of the very first horror classic films that was going to come out, and then it never did for a long time. It was uh, it had been part of the Universal uh, VHS collection, but it was a Paramount film, and it had been one of the Paramount films that had been licensed to Universal, and Universal still had the rights for VHS, but they no longer had the rights by the time DVDs came out. And so it kind of got lost in the muck and mire of rights issues before it finally got a Criterion Collection release. And I think it's a very nice release and, and probably the best we're ever going to see the film. I don't know. I think I'd, I'm, it sounded like I liked it a lot more than you well, did. Well, yeah, a couple of things you said I want to comment on. So, yeah, definitely uh, Charles Lawton, to me, he's the definitive Moreau it's I, let's say he's the stereotypical Moreau. When we get to it, I I really liked Burt Lancaster in the role, but the, different. And and that's the point is that these movies vary slightly on the purpose of the experiments. Uh, in and maybe you can help me line this up here. And I know in one of them, it is you know there's definitely malicious purposes. They want to build a super race of humans. But in another, it's for good reasons. Think of the good we can do from what we learn from this. So they, they vary slightly. Now, in this one, there's a lot of... there's I think feel like there's more spent on the science in this one, and it goes yeah. beyond just the human experiments. He's grown giant vegetables. There's a huge asparagus that's in the greenhouse. And so I feel like it goes into the science a little more. I, Having watched them all recently, I'm not... What was his purpose... Was his purpose totally evil, or for me, I, I got that it was it, he was again a lot more of the kind of stereotypical mad scientist. And considering the time period, that would be that'd be normal, right? I mean, I don't think they would delve too deep into to uh, you know the, that kind of topic. Developing a super race wasn't something that was really. I think that was more in Twilight. People. Right, I, by early thirties that. <clears throat> We hadn't hit the Germany era yet, right? right? So the idea of a super race, you know, 10 years later would certainly become a hot topic and then has popped up in films over the years, but it wasn't in this version. I don't know. I think it was just more of a mad scientist. I mean, there was, 
the way he portrayed Moreau, kind of evil, malicious, you know, uh, kind of twisted and sick, you know, watch he wanting to, as you said, uh, you know, the the Panther Woman and and Edward Parker to to mate and getting delight that they were going to be together. Yeah, kind of kind of creepy, you know. I mean, definitely evil and twisted. Yeah, and I mentioned how the climax was terrific, and it is. And this was directed by Earl Kenton, who I know did some other monster movies of the era. I'm thinking one of the Frankenstein ones. Do you have yeah. what movies he did? Yeah, Ghost of Frankenstein, yeah. House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, quite a few of the Abbott and Costello yeah. films. Too. So there's a great sequence at the end when finally the experiments have had enough and they're going to, you know, attack Moreau or strike back, I guess. One by one, they step towards the camera, and you see maybe for the first time clearly their what they look like with the makeup and everything. And it's just it's very well shot. It's very scary. And then you know the ending scene when they have captured Moreau, he's on the operating table. You can't really see him, but they're just all swarmed around him. That whole sequence is just I think it's terrifying, and it's very. I, I think it's the most again the most graphic of the three films personally and i think that of the three films we see the the least amount of the monsters the, the creatures i mean that you you get them you get them but you don't get the prolonged shots like you do in the other films well and that's true and Which so think, this moment when they do step into the camera one by one and that's kind of like the first time and then you don't see them a lot after that but that I think all of these movies sort of depend on some mystery of what these things look like and seeing something here and there and then the reveal more so than in others. But certainly in this one, you know, when they're finally revealed, that adds to the horror of that sequence. Because you don't, I think it's because you really don't see them much after that. Whereas in the other films, once that big reveal is, you see a lot of them. Yeah. To varying degrees of, of success. <laughs> I think that's what makes this one for me stand out because I guess we get it in smaller doses and and, and it's that, you know, old adage, you know, that sometimes that, that, you know, less is more. And right. I think that's really what we, because you've got some, you know, uh, you know, Charles Gamora and Wally Westmore. I mean, gosh, they, they did amazing work. I, I think that on one hand, yeah, I would have loved to have seen a little bit more of them. But on the other hand, we got just enough. And and I think maybe if we would have seen more, might not have had the the same effect or, or impact on me at least anyway. So I don't know. And I think you know it was a combination of that. You've got the the good cast. You've got I think it was a good script in, in the sense that they were adapting this story, kind of you know setting it in modern times um, and fleshing out a little bit of of the Edward Parker character. Um, the screenplay was by uh, Philip Wiley and Waldemar Young, both who have some pretty good credits. Uh, Philip Wiley did Murders in the Zoo, uh, The Invisible Man, uh, When Worlds Collide. Uh, Waldemar Young uh, did a lot of work with uh, Lon Chaney Sr. He was involved in The Unknown, London After Midnight, West of Zanzibar, The Unholy Three, so they they understood the time period and 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 definitely have some good horror cred. So and the black and white works very well for it. It just I think the environment is more authentic in this than any of the others. It's darker. It seems more claustrophobic. Yes. Uh, so definitely the production 
design is fantastic on it. I, I would I would agree. I think this is you know, again sometimes black and white films don't necessarily give you as an expansive view of the you know the island or your surroundings and the, you know whatever the case may be and that, that claustrophobia kind of you know because it is so you know centralized and and you know, granted yes th- this was not filmed on location this was filmed on a sound stage but i think that it works for this film the other films because they're filmed on location they they take advantage of that and maybe visually in some ways are a little more pleasing to the eye. I don't think they're as effective though as the the this version. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. And I I feel like I'm betraying Monster Kids everywhere if I say I don't like this movie. It's not true. It, it's in general. I just think the story of the island of Doctor Moreau. To me, they haven't made yet a a really good effective from beginning to end movie of the story so i would be curious to read the book and see you know why not or is the book what it you know it could just be the subject matter i like other themes and and ideas better and i i I want to just say i mean just because you're not betraying monster (laughs) kids you know we all you know yeah there's classics that we all love but Again, there's some of these movies that 99% of the people may enjoy, but if you don't enjoy it, I don't think that you lose your your monster card, you know. And and I hear this on other podcasts too, and and people try to defend. And I think you know, you know, we always used to say, "Oh, you got the guilty pleasure," you know. We've we've really said, "No, there's no guilty pleasures. If you enjoy something, you enjoy it." And I think the the reverse is true as well. If you don't enjoy a movie, no, you don't lose your monster card on that because you know. For whatever reason, there may be a film out there that everyone else enjoys, but you're like, eh, you know, because I hear some people, you know, have, have you know, said, well, they're not really big fans of, of uh, Lugosi's Dracula. Or I've heard people say, Bride of Frankenstein is a highly overrated film. I might disagree with them, but it doesn't mean that their opinion's any less valid. So I'm, I'm going to call you out and say okay, no. Okay, well, no. You, well, I you still have your that. monster card. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. So any other comments on... Island of Lost Souls. No, it's available on uh, Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection. Certainly is something I think you should add to your collection, especially since it was not available for so many years. It's something that, um, now that we have it, we should enjoy it. And uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, highly recommend it. Again, if you're a Lugosi fan, be prepared that he's not in it very much. But, you know, what he is in it is effective. Uh, Really, this is uh, mostly Charles Lawton's show, and uh, I think he succeeds. Hello, gentlemen. This is Steve Turk back, and I just got done rewatching Island of Lost Souls. It's, again, one of my favorite movies. I watch it just about every year. Uh, It's one of my top 20 favorite monster movies. Then I did the poll um, earlier this year for Derek and Monster Kid Radio. So all I can say is it's a 10 out of 10 right off the bat. And it's just, it's just wonderful to see this 1932 classic. you got Charles Lawton just acting his heart out as the Dr. Moreau, showing that evil, and just basically twirling his mustache, doing everything he can just to show this evil, maniacal scientist. And uh, Bella Lugosi as the sayer of the law, does an excellent job, though. I wish he would have had a bigger role as um, 
uh, than he did, you know, because it's kind of like you'd hope that he'd always give Bellow more. They always seem to, to give him the short end of the stick, so to speak, in his career. But probably the thing I like the most about this movie, besides Charles Lawton, is um, Kathleen Burke as the panther woman. The way she just moved around with her body language just showed that animalism that, you know, that where she came from and how she was just going through the whole movie. It just, it really helped sell it. And um, like I said, it's just, it's just very well acted. Overall, solid movie. Um, you can never go wrong with watching The Island of Lost Souls and everybody should have it that's a monster or horror movie fan in their collection. It, it's just one of the best movies ever. All right, give you guys feedback with the next movie in a little bit. Half Beast, All Monster, The Twilight People, Matt Farrell, Soldier of Fortune, plucked from the depths of the sea, plunged into a nightmare of supernatural science. You are to participate in the single most important scientific event in the history of life on this planet. We can do it here. And I don't even get a formal invitation. Would you mind lying down, please? From the cave of cruelty they came. Test tube terrors evolved from evil. From the fortress of fear they fled. A herd of howling horrors thundering through the jungle. A savage stampede hell bent on blood. Human desire. Animal lust. Creatures out of the shadows onto your throat. Twilight people. Welcome back. So let's shift gears and go to a entirely different tone of movie, I would say for sure, with the Twilight people. What uh, background information do you have for us on that, Rich? Well, we should first mention that there was another version in 1959, Terror is a Man. I think both you and I had intentions of watching it before the podcast, but the 31 Days of Halloween took 31 days of our time so and and it is a good thing to mention now though because uh, apparently from what i've read terror is a man was the first philippine horror movie yes and twilight people is a philippine horror movie eddie romero who of course was involved in the production of this was a co-director of terror is a man oh i didn't know that yes and he and this he had this idea brewing from Terror as a Man. So I don't know that you call it a remake, but because I've seen Terror as a Man and it's definitely different as far as I remember, but it, it's been a while. So, Well, I got halfway through it before I started dozing. Remember that I find these movies uh, a little dull until the finale. It focuses more on one creature, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and he's wrapped in bandages, most sort of a mummy-like yeah, or a, even yeah. sort of a Frankenstein-type vibe with it. But it's... Other than that, it's pretty similar to the other movies that we watched. But And I want to finish it and you know see what happens, but 
I, I just didn't get all the way through it before we recorded. Well, and it is coming out as, in a, a new box set with all of the Blood Island films, which are uh, from Eddie Romero. So, I mean, Eddie Romero is the director of The Twilight People, and, uh, of course, he's also responsible for Brides of Blood, Mad Doctor of Blood Island, Beast of Blood, The Beast of the Yellow Knight. There, I know that uh, you watched, there is uh, on the Blu-ray and DVD, there is a uh, vintage hour interview with Eddie Romero. I didn't get a chance to make my way through it, but uh, he is definitely fondly remembered in the sub-genre of Philippine horror movies. Uh, there was a documentary a few years back called Machete Maidens, I think, which is an excellent documentary on the Filipino horror genre, uh, subgenre. Actually, I've got it on, on, I purchased it off iTunes, and, and I need to go back and revisit it because that's a genre that I'm very weak in, and I had never heard of the Twilight People. I mean, so when you mentioned it to me, I'm like, I didn't know there was another version of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Now, officially, they don't give credit to H.G. Wells, and, and we don't have any names that, that, you know, there's no Dr. Moreau in this one, but this is an adaptation of the of the classic tale. The film was officially credited to Jerome Small and Eddie Romero. Well, you know, Eddie Romero's got a lot of uh, various credits to his name, and Jerome Small, I don't even know if that's a real person, because this is the only credit he ever had, so might just be a name given to to someone who maybe uh, they they just wanted to give a tie, maybe a credit to someone else besides Eddie Romero. I don't know. Might be that they did a one and done film in their career. But in any case, no reference to H.G. Wells, but you got to know Eddie Romero was obviously influenced by it. Let's just run down the cast first and then we can kind of talk about the film because it, it, the main star is John Ashley. John Ashley plays Matt Farrell, and he is essentially the uh, the Edward Parker uh, character in this movie. We talked about him uh, a little bit when we did How to Make a Monster, because he actually was the Elvis Presley-like oh. character in that film. You just put that song into my head. Oh. <laughs> he also did Frankenstein's Daughter. He did a ton of beach movies in the 1960s. And then he went to the Philippines and found success... Because he also starred in The Brides of Blood, The Mad Doctor of Blood Island, The Beast of Blood, and The Beast of the Yellow Knight. So he and Eddie Romero struck up a friendship and started doing all of these films together. Pat Woodell plays Neva Gordon, who is the female love interest in this movie. Kind of a different character that I don't really think we see. I guess we kind of sort of see it in the next version, the 77 version, but... I, I did not recognize her, but she was actually well-known because she was on the first two seasons of Petticoat Junction. Now, I love Petticoat Junction back in the day. She played Bobby Joe in the first two seasons. And, I, you know, I'm going to go... This is a sidetrack here. <laughs> but um, she did 74 episodes. Those two seasons were black and white. And then the show shifted to color... She left to pursue a music career that never really happened. Years later, when Petticoat Junction went into syndication because of rights issues, the black and white episodes never went into syndication. Hmm. So unless you were alive in the 1960s when it aired, you didn't see those until just like the last five years or so. 
MeTV started showing them uh, like in the last five years. The first two seasons were also put out on DVD by CBS, which now owns the rights. Prior to that, though, they had never been seen on television. The 70s, 80s, 90s, they were never syndicated. So her episodes of Bobby Joe have been virtually forgotten by multiple generations of people until now. So that's kind of her only big claim to fame, actually, was that. Jan Merlin played uh, the character of Steinman, and uh, he actually had an uncredited role in Them, which is a sci-fi classic. He was also in uh, Tom Corbett's Space Cadet and lots of television work for him. Charles McCauley played uh, Dr. Gordon. He's got some interesting credits. He's, he was in Tower of London, the 62 version with Vincent Price. He was in Blackula, uh, The House of Seven Corpses, uh, I think one or two episodes of Night Gallery, and fear not, here's our Star Trek reference. He played Landru in the first season episode, Return of the Archons. And then he played Jarrus in the second season episode, Wolf in the Fold, which was a Jack the Ripper episode. Written by Robert Block. Yes, one of the best of the Trek episodes, actually. Um, So there you go. I I don't think we're going to have any Doctor Who references that I could come up with, but we definitely had uh, a Trek reference. And I've got one for you later. Ah, excellent. Pam Greer plays uh, Ayesa, I think is how it was pronounced. She's the Panther Woman. And this was only her fifth film. Of course, she did other films like Coffee, Scream, Blackula Scream, Foxy Brown. I did not know that she was in Something Wicked This Way Comes. It's been a while since I've seen that. Mm. For some reason, I never realized it was her in that film. And she's still acting today. She's still, she has a wide variety of roles. So, film and TV. And then we have our beasts in the film. The two key ones, there is Kuzma, the Antelope Man, played by Ken Metcalf, who was in Beast of the Yellow Knight and uh, The Thirsty Dead. Tony Gosalvez plays Darmo the Batman. Now, we'll talk about Batman in a second. We sure will. But I've got to find this other film that he did in 1980... The Six Million Centavo Man. <laughs> I've got to find this. If anyone out there knows where I can get a copy of The Six Million Centavo Man, please contact me because I have to have that. I am such a big Six Million Dollar Man fan, and yes, I know it's got to be a spoof of that title, but nonetheless. So let's talk about the movie. This one is is set up differently than than the other two right from the get-go really from how matt farrell becomes part of i can't say dr moreau's but dr gordon's world actually i like this setup and this goes to that point of giving the hero a purpose or a reason they set up from the very first minute that this guy is a hunter. He's a renaissance man. So we know he would have some reason to you know, want to be involved with what's happening on the island rather than just get the heck out of there. So I liked that. But he is he's kidnapped, and this is different because other heroes in the other two movies just got involved by being shipwrecked or whatever. But he, Not by accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah but this, he this was, was purposely chosen to be 
become part of the experiment. I, well, and when he's pulled out of the water, too, I mean, I, I kind of found that kind of a bit of a shock because, I mean, basically he's kind of strung up and they're pulling him up by his feet and then... You know, when they bring him on the on the deck, I mean, they're they're all kind of pouncing on him and attacking. It was, uh, you know, John Astley is is never going to win an Academy Award for his acting, but I actually kind of liked him in this movie. He kind of worked, you know, and it was interesting because you know he's in a situation where he he's on this island, he can't get away, so he becomes interested in what's happening. It's like, well, I'm here, you know. It's like I might as well. And you mentioned the daughter of Dr. Gordon. So she's in on it from the start, but then changes her tune as she falls in love with Matt Farrell. So that's kind of interesting, too. And, and it's a different character, because we don't really have that character. Right. I mean, there's a, a little bit, I guess, some comparisons to Barbara Carrera's character, a little. Yeah. And the, and in there's, the 77 version, but not there, much. And there's still the, the Panther woman with uh, Pam Greer, but not as a romantic interest. No, she's that, much more animalistic yeah, in this film. Yeah, I think this movie does a better job. I, I was bored for less time because very quickly he realizes he wants to help everyone escape. And the movie becomes ultimately just a sort of a big fun chase through the woods. Yeah, it's, it's much with, more... Uh, the good guys, you know, rescuing. Uh, by that time, the daughter has turned. She wants to help uh, Matt Farrell. They release the animals, and a lot of the rest of the movie is this fun chase through the woods with the bad guys after him. And the bad guys are like caricatures. I mean, the henchmen of oh, they are. Dr. Gordon, but it's just fun. I'm, and well, you know, you and you've got you do see a lot of the creatures, you know, and, and let's 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 say the antelope man. <laughs> you're never gonna get convinced that he's really an antelope man, <laughs> but. I don't know. It somehow it works in a this this makeup is so bad it's good kind of kind of scenario. And the Batman, I, I love the Batman yes. flying through the jungle well, as as goofy and, as it was. It worked. Yeah, and this there's a lot of humor in the movie. So yeah, you've got this Batman, and all through it, you know, all you want to do is see this Batman fly. I mean, what? good is they're having a literal Batman if he doesn't fly. Absolutely. And he tries and, you know, he up on a tree branch and launches and falls flat on his face. Ha ha. It's genuinely funny. I enjoyed that. There's some humor with that. But then when he takes off, man, it's like, yes, Batman, yes, go. Yes, yeah. And, you know, you can see the wire that he's swinging through. Oh, yeah. He's like <laughs> zip lining through the woods with his arms flapping. But it's, it is fantastic. I absolutely love the Batman. I, special shout out to Tony Arteta <laughs> and Remedios Amazon for their uh, tremendous special effect work here. Uh, I don't know any other films these guys did. I'm sure if I I didn't look at their creds, but I guarantee you they probably did Brides of Blood <laughs> yeah. and Mad Doctor of Blood Island and all the others. Um, this movie surprised me. I, I went in with very low expectations because I knew uh, this is a... Eddie Romero, John Ashley, Filipino film. It's gonna be down here. I, I'm impressed, actually, because I guess I went in with such low expectations that, you know, no, it's it's not perfect. No, it's not gonna, you know, uh, surpass Island of Lost Souls, in my opinion. But it's definitely worth checking out. It, it's definitely worth, 
your time. And and now I haven't seen very many of these Filipino films. Like, I, you know, I, I all the other films, The Brides of Blood and Mad Doctor Blood Island, all that. I mean, they've got a rep, and they probably are horrible. But now I'm really, and I think I've seen. Yeah, Beast I've of seen Yellow the Night. first Blood movie, and it's not bad. I didn't like it as much as this, but. They're just good, cheesy. I, I tell you... Uh, see, I've got to go back to watch that Machete Maidens documentary to see what they say about this film. Well, Does and it... you should watch the, the extra feature, the interview with... Yes. Uh, first of all, Eddie Romero is a very likable guy. I just see a, the a opening good, moment. Yeah, he seemed you know, um, But he talked about you know these Filipino horror movies, and he's like... He, he acknowledges them for what they are, and uh, he says they're not very universal. I mean, they're very localized to being Philippine, and that's why they don't have much universality. Um, you know, why they don't have worldwide success, and they are sort of these unknown sort of niche movies. He talked about Pam Greer, how she did her own stunts, and she never complained. Uh, he also mentioned that this, I guess, the time he was making these movies was during the regime of Marcos. What was Marcos first? I think of Imelda, but who was the... <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I remember now you've sent me off this track of Imelda, yeah. Marcus. I know it's... Yeah, all I can think about is shoes now. But yes. No. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it was during his regime, and he encouraged filmmaking, so that was why yeah. there was this sort of boom of, of movies that he was working on. So all sorts of interesting things. It's, it's a very entertaining interview. I, to be honest, a lot of times I'll watch kind of skip through them and see if they say this was something i watched from beginning to end it was he's just such a entertaining man to to listen to well i'm looking forward to it you know i i watched a lot of movies in october and um several of the films had like interviews with you know i, I did watch long hair of death that jonathan also watched i unfortunately watched the secret of dorian gray from 1970 please dear god don't see that film and there was a lot of interviews on, on a lot of the discs that I watched, and there was varying degrees of interviews. So uh, some of them were were vintage, as in dubbed from a VHS copy, and there was one that seemed to go on just forever and ever, and it was just going on and on and on. So if this is interesting, I'll definitely check it out, because... Um, you know, sometimes just having the ability to throw on an extra onto a DVD, you know, and you get just a, a, an interview that is refreshing and informative, that's great. And then you watch the next one, and it's like they go on for 30 minutes about nothing. Yeah. So well, I, this is, yeah, it, it makes you appreciate the movie more because you know more about their intentions and what Which is went what into the interview the making should of do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, they should talk about yeah. the film. You know, I will not totally ruin my cred again by saying that this is the best of the three movies but I will proudly say it's the most entertaining of the three movies and in the context of this episode I think it's the one I'd recommend the most number one because most people probably haven't seen it they probably think it's bad so it's going to be a pleasant surprise and number two just for you know why do we watch movies at all to be entertained Island of Lost Souls is very dark and you can appreciate it and it's a little bit artsy. That's great. This is just flat out entertaining and I I really, really enjoyed it. This is this is Saturday night creature feature material that you're gonna enjoy. I, I would while not my favorite of the three, uh, I definitely recommend it because it's a film that 
prior to you mentioning it to me, I'd never heard anyone talk about, which I think that's kind of a hidden gem then. And I think this uh, finally getting a release. Who was the company that put it out? Uh, I think it was... Was it Arrow? Was it Arrow? It's it's on my shelf. I will go walk over to the shelf in what we call wonderful podcasting. And... Uh, no, that doesn't look like Arrow. A shout? Uh, VCI? VCI. VCI, yes. Okay. VCI. Wasn't that wonderful, folks? Yeah, it was, it was a nice... Yeah, it's, it's a nice Blu-ray. And yeah, remastered... I thought it was a great picture. Remastered in 2K with a 35mm negative. First time in widescreen. First time I'd even heard of it. So (laughs) check it out. Check it out. Definitely worth adding to your collection. Um, I I think you'll enjoy it, and uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised. There was a lot to to enjoy. And for nothing else, the Batman. Come on. Well, let's uh, have a trailer for our last one then, which I guess would be our one... I always thought of it as a big-budget Hollywood version of Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, So we'll come back and see if that's uh, what it really is. Hello, gentlemen. I'm back again with Terror is a Man. This is an interesting movie. I'd never even heard of it. Obviously never seen it before. From, what, 1959, Philippines. Uh, It it definitely is interesting as to whether or not this is an Island of Dr. Moreau-type movie. it does take place on an island. It does have a scientist that takes an animal, a panther in this case, and makes a, a singular creature. Uh, but other parts of it are missing to me. To me, it's like the island Dr. Moore would have lots of um, creatures in it instead of just one. Uh, this one could have been almost set anywhere, an island, um, a, a castle, a mountain, or whatever. And of course, you only have a singular creature and had the same kind of premise to me. I mean, it didn't really uh, didn't really do much for me by being set on the island as it would have been if it would have been a bunch of creatures, and that's why they had to be isolated so much. The other thing that was interesting to me about this movie was I really did not care at all for the hero. Um, Richard Deere as William Fitzgerald, the character comes in and almost right away is making the moves on um, Dr. Gerard's wife, Francis, you know, and doing everything he can to get in her pants. And yes, he does not, he's not really, um, I shouldn't say, uh, he doesn't really do anything with his wife. It's almost like one of those scientists, they're so busy doing other stuff that he's kind of forgets to, like the love is lost in the physical side of their relationship. But it's like he never stops. I think he's still in love with her. It's just he's more um, absent-minded because he's so focused on his experiment. Um, so, and also, Dr. Gerard is not really evil. He's actually, he creates a creature, or, or, or takes a creature to be more of a man, but he, does, he doesn't really do anything in, I don't know, crazy or painful or whatever, like you see the other characters, like in the Dr. Moreau series, do to creatures. That's done by um, Walter, one, you know, that one guy works with him. He's the one who does all the mean stuff to the creature. He's the one that's basically raping and doing stuff to islanders and things like that. He's just a, he's just a sleaze bag. So it's just kind of interesting that of the three main male leads, the one that's the most heroic and good is the Dr. Gerard. And um, the one who's supposed to be our hero, William Fitzgerald, is just basically 
a guy that's only out for himself and wants to do anything he can. And uh, I, I just cannot get into his character at all. And um, it's just it's kind of weird because it's, it, it goes different than you would expect in other movies. As for the, the creature and the special effects, I mean, yes, it is the late 50s. They're okay. It looks better when the thing is more like a mummified and wrapped up in its bandages, so to speak. Uh, I mean, it's enjoyable. I would say this movie is like a 5 out of 10. It's, it's just your average monster movie. There's nothing really, to me, that's special about it. There's nothing really bad about it. You can take it or leave it. I mean, it's not one I would want to own, but it is one that, you know, I'm glad I did watch and got a chance to see. But like I said, it just, I just really have a problem with the um, the male lead. You know, I think he's just, like I said, I think the way the character is set up and portrayed, he's just, he's just a, a, a jerk. All right, hopefully the Twilight people will bring me some more happiness, and I'll talk to you guys about that in a little bit. Thanks. Hey Rich, hey Jeff, it's Steve back again with the Twilight People this time. Now this is one I'm actually happy that you guys have made me watch. You know, it came out of what, early 70s, 71, 72. And this is a fun flick. I mean, it, it moves, it has good pacing, it keeps you interested in it. I mean, it does have some issues with the uh, makeup not being that great at all, but I just really enjoyed the uh, the pacing and the action going with it and had a fun time with it. I enjoyed John Ashley as Matt Farrell as the lead character. I really enjoyed Pat Woodall or Woodell as Neva Gordon. Um, you know, because it was it's kind of interesting because she was just as much of a lead as he was because he broke into two groups and she was trying to keep the um, animal people safe and um, get them to. Uh, the safety as long as the, with the rest of them. I especially like the villain, um, Steinman, by Jan Merlin. He was just, to me, like I've said this before in other movies, when you have a horror movie or a monster movie, it's only as good sometimes as the villain that the heroes have to fight against. And he is evil, malicious. Oh, it was wonderful. Um, I really, really enjoyed that character with his bleached blonde hair and um, that kind of stuff. It was just, I mean, he, he, he made, helped make this movie. So, like, and then, of course, um, Dr. Gordon, Charles McLaughlin, I think is how you say his name. He was excellent as the mad scientist or the mad doctor type role. So, here you have your four main characters all filling their roles very well. And, and doing an excellent job of keeping the movie—excuse <coughs> me—the movie going. Um, as for the animal people, I know Pam, Pam Greer is the pan for woman, but I mean, really, you can tell this is early in her career. It's not—I mean, yes, yeah, she moves like a pan for woman, but nowhere near as good as um, Kathleen Burke did in the first movie. But but of course, Pam Greer's character is supposed to be more of an attacking and taking out the um, soldiers of um, Steinman. Uh, but really, it was like I said, it was a fun flick. I would recommend everybody watch this one. I give it 7 out of 10. I mean, I'm actually looking, trying to see if I can find it on DVD or Blu-ray. And I picked this one up to have in my collection. So thank you guys for um, drawing this one to my attention. I mean, this was a 
Otherwise, otherwise would have been a missed opportunity. I probably never would have thought, oh, let's watch the Twilight people. So thank you both. All right, otherwise, I'll be heading into Island of Dr. Moreau, 1977. Talk to you guys in a bit. Andrew Braddock, shipwrecked and cast away on a land beyond human experience. A world inhabited by sounds and shadows. The island of Dr. Moreau. Good morning. We haven't met, officially, that is. I'm Dr. Moreau. Andrew Braddock, sir. Has he come for your work? No. Just till the next ship arrives. The island was a Garden of Eden, a tropical paradise, and a trap. Because here, a bizarre civilization was growing. What happened, Mr. Braddock? Well, those creatures, what are they? You go back to the compound, that way. This is man. Understandably, they fear this place. The pain they've suffered. And when they revert, they bring back into their brute lives the memory of that experience. Their human legacy. You will explore that in the battlefield and bring back the knowledge. The ultimate knowledge. See, it's happening already. No! 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 You are an animal. This is the chillingly prophetic story of the genius who tore down the walls that separate man and beast. Burt Lancaster, Michael York, Nigel Davenport, Barbara Carrera, Richard Basehart, and the incredible human animals that populate the island of Dr. Moreau. It's 1977. It's time for our third film, The Island of Dr. Moreau. So this was the first English adaptation to use the actual story name. The German film from 1921 had used it, but prior to that, there had never been a film to actually use the title of the novel in the movie. Uh, this was a big-budget Hollywood production, as you said. and uh, Yet, it was released by American International, which yes. is interesting. Yes, which was not a big-budget film, I guess, and... and, and but it was it definitely got a lot of hype and it definitely yeah. because well I mean it's got a good cast. You've got a couple of well known people from the time. Burt Lancaster, of course, my gosh, he, he had incredible screen cred by this point. Sorry wrong number, from here to eternity, his Majesty O'Keefe, the Rainmaker, Run Silent, Run Deep, Seven Days in May, Elmer Gantry. Uh, all of this prior to nineteen seventy seven. He was well known in Hollywood. Um, also known now for Field of Dreams, which came out after this. But um, he's definitely uh, the lead character playing Dr. Moreau, where we have Michael York playing... We're going to change the name again. Here it's Andrew Braddock. He had done a lot of films in the 70s. He was definitely hot in Hollywood in the 70s because he had done The Three Musketeers and... Was it The Four Musketeers, the sequel... 
He had done Logan's Run. Logan's Run. He had done Jesus of Nazareth, where he played John the Baptist. So he was definitely well known. He was. He had done several big films. Many people remember him now as Basil Exposition in the Austin Powers films. He did a lot of TV work in the eighties, but in the seventies, he was hot in Hollywood, and so. He's the hunky leading man in this film. I wondered about that. He does not personally appeal to me, but he certainly is shirtless a lot in the movie, and I wondered if that was a big draw for the women. I, I, he, he was, if you think, like I said, the other films that he did, he was the kind of best period of time. He was the dashing Hollywood guy. So, I mean, Burt Lancaster was the lead, but Michael York was the, the, the young lead, so to speak. I mean, they the draw for a lot of probably young people at the time. You've got Nigel, Nigel Davenport uh, playing Montgomery. He had done a lot of, of uh, stuff around this time period. He was in Phase 4, which is an excellent movie. Uh, he had done the uh, 73 television version of Picture of Dorian Gray, which I thought I was getting when I bought <laughs> Secret of Dorian Gray. It's not, by the way. Uh, he had, did the 74 version of Dracula, did lots of TV work. I recognized the name, and I recognized him, but I, I don't know. Maybe I recognized him from Phase 4. I have not seen the 73 version of Dorian Gray or the 74 version of Dracula. So I don't know where I recognized him from. Now, I did recognize Barbara Carrera, who plays Maria, who I guess... She's, I don't know, her character really doesn't exist in the other versions. There's different... Well, I equate her to the Panther Woman. She's the Panther Woman, and we'll talk about what could have been yes, a definitive and time. and should have been, I agree. She had just been in a film called Embryo, so she was also kind of hot in Hollywood at this point. She was in the 83 James Bond film Never Say Never Again where she played the the main lead in that film, female lead, I should say. She did a lot of TV work. She was actually on Dallas as Angelica Nero in the infamous Dream season. Uh, she blows up the Ewing offices at the end, and then, of course, the next episode we find out it never happened. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I will admit I watched Dallas oh, back in too. the day. Oh, me too. Uh, and it, and Heck, I watched the new version that they had a couple of years I, ago. I did too. I enjoyed it. <laughs> and you know what? Michael York, he was actually in Knott's Landing in the 1980s. So there you go. Uh, Richard Basehart, I didn't recognize him. Hard to do, I guess, under the makeup. But right. he was the sayer of the law. He had done Mo- Moby Dick in 56. Uh, did lots of TV work, including 110 episodes as Admiral Nelson in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And 84 episodes as uh, the narrator on Knight Rider. Hmm. As the Sayer of the Law, we see him a lot more in this film than the Sayer of the Law character had been seen, I, I guess, in Island of Lost Souls. And we see the creatures a lot more in this film than we do any of the other films. And the makeup work is much better in this film than the Twilight people comparable i think to island of lost souls but we get to see it more and i think that for the most part i think it's quite successful and you're going to talk about that i know in just a second screenplay was done by richard allen simmons who did lots of tv work al ramras and john herman shaner television people which i found interesting 
that a bunch of TV writers would do this particular big Hollywood film, so to speak. And it was directed by Don Taylor, who had done Escape from the Planet of the Apes, The Final Countdown. Uh, he did a- Damien Omen 2. That's something we should do, is the Omen oh, trilogy. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Coming in 2019. <laughs> you know, you've got a lot of cred coming here. You've got a great cast. You've got, besides the, the, the television writers, you've got a good director. And this is a has a feel of a bigger budget film. It's got, I think, the best soundtrack. Uh, visually looks the best out of, of the it's three sumptuous. films. Yes, absolutely. I would agree. But clearly, by hearing us talk, this is our least favorite of the three films. Why? Uh, well, I, the problem I have with the others, it, this though particular to me is more dull uh, up until the climax. And, and I don't even... Yeah. I think this is even the weaker climax of the three. Well... I, I take that back. I'll get back to that in a minute. I do want to talk about the makeup for a second, and I get a heavy Planet of the Apes vibe from this movie. So, first of all, I I remember this movie coming out. I mean, this was the same year as Star Wars. I do remember a lot of press for it. I don't know if it really was big-budget Hollywood, but that's how it is in my memory. That's how it was presented when it came out. It had this... I think the makeup was the big thing they were promoting, and... Uh, it has this Planet of the Apes vibe. John Chambers, Dan Stripke, Tom Berman, some of these people that had worked on Planet of the Apes. And it, it looked like the appliances were very similar. I mean, at one point, like the mouth even sort of moved like an ape. You know how they kind of there was the constantly one, There was moved. the one woman in the, uh, the, the cave towards the end of the film that I actually had to do a double take. I thought she looked like that she had come off a of Planet of the Apes movie. So. Yeah. It's good makeup. Now, I think in this movie, it's different from the other three as far as he, Dr. Moreau, was taking animals and making them human. Yes. So that's a little different twist on the story. Um, No, because, I mean, that's... Well, I mean, yeah, the first film, Island of Lost Souls, I mean, was dealing with a vivisection. But... Um, no, I think it, the, that had to do with animals becoming human. Okay, well, uh, but it dealt more with the vivisection of it. But I mean, this one was was more of a more science, I guess, and, and less. I, I don't know. They made more of the point that these were animals that were made humans, and that they could revert back to more of their animal form, so they would. They touched on that a little bit in Island of Lost Souls, but they did it more in this film. Yeah. The hype, the makeup, the Planet of the Apes. Vibe. Oh, and the Planet of the Apes vibe even extended to uh, some scenes at the beginning when he's running through the woods and then he oh, yeah. comes to a clearing and there's a horse that rears up in front yeah, of him. Yeah. That's straight out of Planet of the Apes. Oh, it is, and yeah. I feel like they were sort of playing up on that a little bit. That franchise had ended by then. Uh, just a big vibe with that kind of picking up some of the qualities of that that were a success and trying to put them in into a new version. As far as the ending it's i don't it doesn't actually fit because it's quite a grim ending they raise they kill moreau they raise him on a rope in front of the compound he hangs there and then ultimately at the end spoiler as the building's burning behind him and you see the silhouette of him hanging there that's very dark and very grim and in a way it's as twisted and disturbing as island of lost souls i think but it sort of stands out more because the tone of the rest of the movie isn't that dark. 
I would uh, agree. I mean, because Island of Lost Souls, I mean, it's dark throughout the whole film. And um, there's almost at points in this film that, I mean, Dr. Moreau wasn't the, I mean, he was, you know, obviously a mad scientist, but he he wasn't crazy mad. And, and you could have, he didn't come across like the creepy, like Charles Lawton like right. character. I mean, he's somebody that, you could probably sit down at a table and not get creeped out. I don't know how you could do that with Charles Lawton, but you could do that with Burt Lancaster. That, I think, really goes to Burt Lancaster and the fact that he's an excellent actor. Not taking that away from Charles Lawton, but Charles Lawton had a particular way of acting that presented itself as kind of creepy in that role. Or Burt Lancaster, this is his acting chops coming through. Yeah, I, f- I like his version of Dr. Moreau, and it, it is more calm and restrained, but when the time comes, when he has to crack that whip and, you know, ask them to say what the law is, he really asserts himself, and it's a it's sort of, it's subtle, but yet it's surprising when that happens, and I, re- I really liked it. I It's a close second to uh, Charles Lawton, I think. And I think, it, you know, speaking of, of the other character than Andrew Braddock, I actually had a problem with his character in this one. It's like he wasn't dropped off on the island like you know Edward Parker was. Uh, he wasn't kidnapped. He happened upon this island, and he's being shown, you know, courtesy and being given clothes and shelter. Then he starts seeing some stuff, and he's pretty darn judgmental and wanting to be. I don't know. He he's to me. It's kind of like. Dude, you just need to sit in the corner and be thankful that you're not out of the ocean. He kind of came across, you know, I mean, yeah, he's seen a lot of crazy stuff. And he wants to kind of stand up and protect those, you know, that he sees that are being subjugated. I get that. But I don't know. I just kind of came across as like he was he was being shown a courtesy by Dr. Moreau. And initially, at least in the first part of the film, and, and it, to me, it just came across that he wasn't being as appreciative as he should have been. Whereas the other characters, I mean, yeah, they were kidnapped or they were dropped off. A little different, you know. And Charles Lawton, from the get-go, is kind of being creepy. And so I get where Edward Parker's, you know, view is a little different. I don't know. I just... Yeah, I, it's problematic. He, on one hand, he he does... He is wishy-washy. He's And this, I spoke to this earlier, how this character in the movies is sort of, you know, up in arms about it, but doesn't really do anything. And he goes up and down from being upset to sort of accepting and learning, and it's not real consistent. However, on the other hand, this is the one movie where he is making an effort to get off the island on his own. He's going to repair his boat whenever he thinks he can get a chance to get down to the beach and work on his boat. So he is trying to get off the island. Yeah, I don't. I didn't really like his character in this, and I don't know if that's because of Michael York, the, just the kind of actor he is. Maybe he wasn't. See, I like Michael York as an actor, so for me, it wasn't his. It wasn't yeah. him as an actor. I think it was the way the character was written. Yeah, and I would agree. I, I love Logan's Run. He was great. In that. Yeah, I think he. I think it was. It was a flawed, more of a flawed character in this film than I. You know, granted, as we said, Edward Parker was flawed in the first one, but. That was very black and white. I mean, he's he's flawed because he's cheating on his fiance. You know, he's being seduced by the Panther Woman. Here, you don't have that. He's just coming across as as almost antagonistic at times. And, and I guess we know the least about him. I mean, of the three hero characters, 
we know the least about his background. Yeah, and, and we, we don't know much about the others, but we know definitely the least of, of about Andrew Braddock. You know, he has the romantic, you know, entanglements with Maria. Who let's let's talk about that. So Maria is presented as basically someone who was saved by Doctor Moreau at a young age. She's not presented as a panther woman. She's not related. So she's not like a Neva Gordon character. She is, I guess, in a way, but she's not. I mean, she's she's a lot more naive. She's there for eye candy for the most part. I mean, she's a very beautiful mm, woman. Beautiful. She's there to be the romantic interest. I kept thinking as I'm watching this movie, and I had seen this so long ago I couldn't remember. I kept thinking... There's gonna. She's the Panther Woman. Something's gonna happen. Something's gonna happen. And then you get to the end of the movie. Spoiler alert. And nothing. I'm with you. It had been a long time since I've seen it. I don't think that would have stuck in my memory because it's not very memorable. The only memory I have is I didn't really like the movie that much. But I knew all along. I'm like, I know she used to be an animal, and they've made her human. Especially, like I said, when they talk about them reverting more back to their uh, animal forms and they have to have injections and all that there was just the hint that she like was the most successful you know something or you know the results out, it, but i knew i just knew you know yeah but i mean but you know but you don't know because it's yeah. not really explained yeah so and, at the end they have the perfect opportunity to give it an, an excellent ending they're on the boat they've made it off the island Michael York has has you know fought off the other creatures. He's reverted back to being human. Well, yeah, they so they had he had done a reverse experiment on him when he started meddling yes. too much. Was injecting him so that he would go from human to an animal, which he resisted. And you know that's an interesting twist. Now that I think about it, sort of his fight to stay human. That's an interesting idea. I love that idea. scene where he's in the cage and he's talking about the first book he got and he's talking about, was it the train station or the park or something where he's talking about? Yeah. He's having those memories, which frustrates Dr. Moreau because he's like, no, you shouldn't be having those memories. And I had a problem with that. Sorry, I keep, <laughs> keep avoiding the, what we were talking about. But he did that under the thought that he wanted to learn what he couldn't get from the animals turning to human, he couldn't get what was going through their minds because they couldn't, in their animal form, communicate that. So that's why he did it to Michael York was so that he could learn what they're going through. But yet, when he was saying what he was going through, he was arguing with him and saying no. Yeah. So he sort of already knew. So his reasons were kind of vague, but I think it was an interesting idea. So on the the boat, they, of course, they, they see a ship and they've been saved. Then you get a very short glint in in the version we watched, a very short, almost too short glimpse of of Maria, and then it goes back to Michael York, and then the credits roll, well, and that's it. And but it's the back of her head looking away. Michael York's looking one direction towards the ships. She's behind him, turn the back of her head, and I just knew. I'm like, all right, turn around. You know, I want to see yes. that you're reverting to an animal. And then it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So they, they they didn't do it in the theatrical release, but yes, they did film a scene where she had teeth, she had animal eyes, and it was 
reinserted for the television broadcast. You know, back in the days, movies would get uh, played on most a lot ABC, CBS, NBC. They would play the theatrical movies two or three years after they came out in theaters, and sometimes they would add extra scenes to run it, flesh out the running time. Star Trek II: Wrath of Khan did that. They added Superman you know, the movie. Yeah, did old extras because that ran two nights back in the day. Uh, Halloween did that as well. Uh, sometimes extra scenes are actually filmed to flesh out the time. So this is just a you know, I would have been probably five seconds, ten seconds, maybe. Well, this bonus feature is a still it's of a still. that shot, so it's like. It you know, it would have been a split second. I mean, you know, it probably would have been uh, probably would have been a fleshed out on the broadcast, maybe five or ten seconds, maybe probably would have done a freeze frame on it. But it would have been in that odd moment where it switches from her back to him. Obviously, it was intended to she turns her head and she's and why they didn't do that. I don't I would love because to know. that was the, the punch that was missing from the film because you're like. And when the credits rolled, I'm like, really? Really? So she wasn't an animal? And then I look at the credits or the extra scene, and I'm like, or or still, and I'm like, okay, well, that, that was what should have been. Why didn't they do that? I don't know. That's one of those odd choices. And, and I don't know. Was that a studio decision? Did they want a happy ending? Did they think it was too down to... I, I, I mean, know. they had the the movie got darker. I mean, I already mentioned that ending with him hanging there and how gruesome. Oh, and don't forget the beast that he's fighting on the boat. How does he dispatch him? That's pretty gruesome. He sticks the broken oar in his yeah, eye. That's yeah. pretty graphic. That's again. I, the only thing I can think of is that they they wanted a happy ending. They yeah. wanted the guy and girl to be saved and go off in the sunset and. But I wonder if we should be grateful because maybe it's just because of that still, but it wasn't a very good job. It looked like it didn't look like she had green contact lenses. It looked like there was like an optical effect they over her eyes. The they weren't effect. like the same shape as her eyes. No, the teeth. I mean, the teeth were, you know, they were probably real. But anyway, I don't know. It, maybe it didn't look right. You know, maybe it didn't turn out the way they wanted. I don't know. But it, it missed opportunity for sure. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I like the movie, but. It, it does drag on. I mean, even though you, you know, I love the the makeup work. I love the the soundtrack. Visually, it was the most stunning. Um, so the soundtrack we didn't mention who did it, Lawrence Rosenthal. And I know the name's familiar. I know he's done a lot of stuff. I don't. I cannot tell you those right now. However, here's my Star Trek reference. So he was the composer. Do you know who did the orchestrations? For the for this movie, for or? this movie, I, I don't know. Alexander Courage. Aha! Who's Alexander Courage? Well, he created the Star Trek theme. There you go. It is still being played in, in every version <laughs> of Star Trek today, even in Star Trek Discovery, the new series. They they have to throw that in uh, in the opening uh, opening theme, just a little snippet of it, and it they they throw it in the the most recent uh, Chris Pine movies as well. So yeah, that's iconic. Any last words? Do are our rankings clear, or do we need to go over those? I think they're pretty clear. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, for me, my favorite is Island of Lost Souls with Twilight People in second place, and Island of Doctor Moreau in third. Um, I think yours is 
Yeah, I, for entertainment purposes, or what I would recommend most is Twilight People for the reasons I stated. Uh, I appreciate Island of, or yeah, Island of Lost Souls. It's definitely a must see. I just don't think it's quite as enjoyable. And then the '77 version, yeah. Let's just mention real quickly that there was another version. '96 is the most recent version. It notorious for being an absolute utter disaster. Marlon Brando, Val Kilmer, and the documentary, which I, I it's escaping my memory at this point. But I watched the documentary on Shutter. I think the documentary is probably more fascinating than the movie itself because it really kind of goes into there was just a lot of forces at play in in that movie and 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 how it even managed to be finished is beyond me. I, you know, I wanted to watch it, didn't have time. I still want to watch it. I do, too. I, I mean, I've seen the documentary, now I have to see the movie. As we speak, I know that, that Steve Turek is, is planning to call in a voicemail, and so there's going to be some edit magic uh, that Jeff is going to do uh, when that voicemail comes in, and I, I would assume maybe you might add in a, a few comments after that voicemail. I won't be present for that, but that's... Do you authorize me to do so? I authorize you to do so. Because I never would do it without your permission. No, we're going to have to do that because uh, Steve did reach out to us today, and we said, well, we're recording tonight, but he wasn't going to have time, So, and we wanted to make sure we would include it. So, But I'm interested to hear what he has to say because uh, about that movie in particular, um, and, and that, I know he said he was also seeing the documentary or had seen it, so... I the documentary was very well done, and I wish I could remember the name of it. But um, it's not like we have phone devices right here where we can look <laughs> it up. But in any case, it's um, there is apparently another version, maybe being talked about. But I think that's it's, that's the only reach the talked about stage at this point. I'm not sure that I really want to see another. I d- I want to see a good version. But I'm, I would I'm like to see what they're going to do with it. Is there because I think they're just going to focus on more grotesque creatures, you know, unless the film really goes back to the original roots, the, the, this, the original story. My fear is that if the wrong person gets a hold of it, they're going to focus on more absurd creatures and a more graphic tone to the film for the sake of, of turning a quick buck. And I think that, Clearly, they kind of went there a little bit with Island of Dr. Moreau in 96. And I'm just afraid that that, to me, that's going to take away from the story. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, I'm not not looking at it. Interestingly enough, I think I liked these movies better than you did collectively. Yet you are looking for another version. Whereas (laughs) I'm like, you know what? I'm okay. I'm okay. If we stop here, let's call it good. Do we have the definitive version? No. So unless the next version is a definitive version and a true adaptation, I'm okay if we if we don't revisit the island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah, and I want to see the character. I'd like to see a little bit of the character before he crashes on the island. Who is he? You know, what is his interest? Give him some reason to either want to stay or to investigate more. And then give him more urgency to get off the island. And, and yeah, that may make some more theatrics out of it and make it more seem cheap because maybe he's held prisoner and is trying to escape or something. But uh, I just, I, I don't think there's been a really good version 
of the story. I forgot this little tidbit, and this maybe gives light of what this version could have been. David Carradine turned down the role of Andrew Braddock. That would have changed the movie entirely because David Carradine is not a dashing leading man character. He wasn't at the time. That would have been interesting to to and I, to to see what he would have done with that role. That would have changed, I think, the tone of the film rather dramatically. And I'm not sure why he turned it down. And I know Michael York turned it down numerous times before finally taking it on. And I don't know his reasons why he resisted either. Uh, and apparently other actors were offered the role and also turned it down. Mm. But yeah, I, f- I forgot that little tidbit. And yeah, wh- what what would that have looked like? That would have been different. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah. So I'm ready to set sail off this island. It wasn't the oasis I was looking for. Uh, you might want to hang around a little bit longer, but... Uh, well, I don't know. If Barbara Carrera is still around, you know, I could get past the teeth and the eyes, but <laughs> no, I think it's time to set sail. All right. We'll be back in just a minute to wrap up. Hello, gentlemen. I'm back again with the Island of Dr. Moreau, 1977 edition, with Burt Lancaster, Michael York, Nigel Davenport, Richard Base heart and uh, Barbara Kiera, I believe, are our main leads. And uh, I'd seen this one, like I said, when I was a boy, when I was about nine or ten years old. So it has been a long time since I saw it. And um, overall, it, it held up to what I remembered before. I mean, I enjoyed it as a child. I enjoyed it again. Um, it was well acted. I mean, Burt Lancaster is excellent as Dr. Moreau. Um, I, I enjoyed Michael York also, uh, but really, um, I think my second favorite character after Burt Lancaster was Richard Basehart as the Sayer of the Law. I mean, unlike Bella Lugosi's character, they gave this Sayer of the Law a lot more things to do, and uh, I, which is what I wish they would have did in Island of the Lost Souls. Uh, it, the makeup was nice. It was good. I mean, especially considering it's the late 70s, the, the makeup was a lot better than it was, especially in the, the Twilight people. The only negative I could say with this movie, there were spots where it was kind of slow moving, where it just, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe because it's 40 years later, we're used to things being differently paced, um, that kind of stuff. But it was just some spots where it was like, I think they could have nipped a few minutes out of here, a few minutes out of there, and... Um, helped with the pacing a little better. But I think it's a solid 7 out of 10. And I own this one now in my collection because I couldn't find this one anywhere except on DVD. Um, and so I ended up purchasing it. So I'm happy I got this one to add in. And um, I think, you know, for anybody that looks down on the Dr. Moreau, I've read the book years ago. And so far, um, Burt Lancaster's portrayal, in my opinion, is, is one of the closer ones to the book and um, it's interesting you know like in the book there are no female characters in each one of these movies there is a female love interest so far uh, of course now I'm heading into um, Island of Dr. Moreau 1996 and I'm sure it's just going to be the best one I've seen yet so um, I'll give you guys feedback on that in a little bit talk to you later bye gentlemen I just got done watching The Island of Dr. Moreau, 1996. And I also watched Lost Soul, The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau from 2014, which I did to help me understand what I saw in the movie. 
I really don't know where to begin with this. I'm still processing what I just witnessed in the movie Island of Dr. Moreau with Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer. And these next couple names I might misspell, mispronounce. David Foulis or Fallis and Beruza um, Balk. Uh, it, and of course, Ron Perlman was in it as the sayer of the law. Besides other people. I know Rich and Jeff messaged me, you both messaged me earlier that you had not seen this movie yet going into your podcast. I think it's safe to say you both did not miss anything. I cannot recommend anybody watch The Island of Dr. Moreau 1996 unless you just want to, unless you like watching train crashes. This thing is. It's not the worst movie I've ever seen, but it, it's it's probably going to be in the top ten or or twenty of of, of bad movies. I don't I don't know where Marlon Brando what he was thinking. I mean, basically, I understand from the uh, the Lost Soul the documentary um, that he he basically was telling one of his co-stars when she came in, and that would be. Um, Ms. Balk, who played the, um, the, the his daughter that, that he had brought up from being like a cat-like creature or maybe a panther, because obviously a lot of times it's the panther woman. Uh, she went up to him and said about well, when, before they had their scene together, you know, she was like, "Well, what, 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 what's our motivations? What's that?" And he said, "Darling, our motivation." They said, "You're paid, I'm paid. That's our motivation." And she's like, I understand that, but like, what is our motivation and our characters? And he said, I'm paraphrasing here, the script is shit, we're both paid, Just don't worry about it, just do whatever you want to do. And that's basically what Marlon Brando did the whole movie. He did whatever the heck he wanted to do. I mean, he put an ice bucket on top of his head for crying out loud, and she put ice on his head. He kept saying he was hot. He white makeup over his head he, 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 I, I really I could only his dialogue and Val Kimmer's dialogue only half of the time it made any sense at all I mean I, I don't think they cared about the script I think they just made stuff up as they went along and from reading stuff about what actors have said and in the documentary pretty much that's what most of the cast did they just made this stuff up as they went um, they winged it. Uh, it was... <laughs> there, but there were parts of good... I mean, not every movie is terrible um, without having some things that are redeeming in it. Uh, out of all the movies, this one I think had the best... I feel had the, definitely had the best makeup um, of, of all of them. Stan Winston's makeup is excellent. You know, his people out there did a great job. Um, I, I think that was very well done. Uh, a lot of the characters that were playing the different creatures did a great job of acting, I thought, and, you know, and portrayed their roles well. I mean, uh, I enjoyed Ron Perlman's character. It's one of the few times I've seen a movie of Ron Perlman where he didn't do anything uh, physical. You know, usually you're always seeing him play something where he gets aggressive or whatever to plays up with his height and strength, but he ended up playing a, uh, a blind goat 
Sayer, the law. And um, again, who does a lot more in this movie than they gave Bella Lugosi back in the Island of the Lost Souls. And it, I wish, again, like I said, not to harping on a, something, but I wish they would have gave more to Bella way back in the early movie. But from understand from reading the different things, Ron Perlman actually had contacts put in his eyes so that he could not see. So that way, he, when he was playing the blind creature, he was actually blind. And I, and I mean, and that's, that's, that's just method acting going all the way right there. I mean, it, it's overall, it's, it's just, it, this, this movie is just very, very interesting. And, I, I mean, one of the first scenes, the first scene that Marlon Brando comes in, it looks like he's coming in in some kind of makeshift Pope mobile. And Val Kilmer's character starts off kind of normal. You know, and then it just t it just takes a deep turn, and Val Kilmer just I don't know what it's like. He jumped off the track of the rails and just just went off on his own thing. And from my understanding, from the documentary and everything I read, everybody hated him. He came in with this "I'm better than everybody" attitude because Batman Forever was just out, and um, he just thought he was too cool for school and. Uh, and it was just, it, it was just, it was just crazy, crazy. There was, there was times where Barnum Brando and Val Kilmer were staying in their trailers. Everybody else is in makeup and all these, these, um, you know, made up by the Stan Winston's people. And I'm ready for these actors to come in and do their scenes. And Barnum Brando wouldn't get out of his trailer until Val Kilmer got out of his trailer. Val Kilmer wouldn't come out of his trailer until Barnum Brando came out of his trailer. I mean, this is almost like a high school hissy fit with two divas going on. I mean, it, 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 I, I mean, you almost wish they had the cameras rolling on what's going on behind the scenes in the movie because the documentary is so much better than this movie. <laughs> and I wish there would be more footage of all this other stuff that was going on. I mean, um, at, at least Martin Brando, we, you know, his whole thing was he was doing it for a paycheck. He didn't care. He knew it was going to be bad and just went in there thinking, what the hell, I'll just do whatever I want. And, um, but at least he didn't treat everybody else like a jerk. Val Kilmer, you know, was just treating people crazy and stuff like that. So, um, as per rating, I give this a 1 out of 10 if you're, so, if you're watching this sober and everything like that. It's, I think this is a movie where if you were drinking a few adult beverages in you, it would probably move up the scales a lot because there could be some scenes that are just, that would make more sense. Um, I don't drink or any of that stuff, so this, I don't know if this movie will ever get more than a 1 out of 10, maybe a 2 out of 10 if I'm being nice about it down the road. But th th this, this movie is just bizarre and crazy and, and rich. I don't know if you've seen the movie yet or not. I'm really, and I, I know I've, I've texted you or messaged you back and forward and, and told you how bad I thought it was. And you keep saying it makes you want to see the movie more. Don't see it, Rich. Don't watch this movie. It's 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 not worth it. The emotional scarring that you'll that you'll go through, because once you've seen it, you can no longer unsee it. I'm just I'm really telling you, Rich. Don't do it. Don't do it, Rich. Okay, guys, um, otherwise, that's the end of my feedback for this movie, and all I can do is, like I said to the listeners, don't, don't watch this movie. Really, just don't watch this movie. This is Steve Turk signing off.
Bye. Welcome back. It's time for new business. Opposite of old business, where we, we don't talk about things in the past. We look to the future, and one of the things we look for is what is coming out on home video. What can we add to our collections and not watch for a year or more? <laughs> First up, on November 13th, Satanic Rites of Dracula coming out from Shout Factory. Now, I think we talked about this last time. I originally thought it was coming out at the same time as Dracula AD uh, 1972. Yes, uh, but the the dates got split. So that Dracula AD is already out. It came out in uh, October, and then this one's coming out in November. Did you get Dracula AD? Did you decide to do it? <sighs> I have not pulled the trigger on that. I have a good DVD copy of that. Yeah. Now, Satanic Rites is still tempting me because I've got a a burn of a yeah. of a, 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 a is it a burn? I don't. It's it's a public domain yeah, copy. Yeah, so, so many different. This names version and... has to be better than what I've got. So that's tempting me. I think I'm okay with what I got for Dracula okay. AD 1972 because I got a good DVD copy of it. I know blasphemy, but yeah. Satanic Rites might be calling my name. Mm-hmm. On the 13th, also from Arrow Video, The Wizard of Gore. So another Herschel Gordon Lewis movie that uh, was originally in a set, and they've been releasing them one by one. On the 13th, from Mondo Macabro, Perversion Story, which is uh, an interesting name. doesn't really sound like a horror movie, and it's not really. I think it's a, a giallo uh, sort of... Just in thing. time for the holidays, yeah, gathering well, what's with your it, family and What do they friends. call it? Polizia Tecta or something. Yeah. It's a genre of Italy. Uh, so I, I thought, well, that name isn't very good. And I looked, and it does have another name. Not much better. It's called One on Top of the Other. Oh, definitely family viewing. <laughs> yes. So. Thanksgiving after you, you know. Woo-hoo. Oh, but that's a Lucio Fulci film. So that's why I mention it. Um, oh, well, there. If okay. you're a Fulci fan. And speaking of Fulci on the 27th, Blue Underground is releasing a Blu-ray of Zombie, and there are apparently several different versions of it. And I don't know if it's the movie itself or just the packages in which you can get it, but um, if you go check out their website, you'll see that you can get different release versions. I think there are a lot of different release versions of that film, and, and of course it's had multiple titles over the years, uh, so that's, yeah. I, I've got a dvd copy of it from i do a too. very long time ago yeah. so and then on the 27th also from code red a movie called almost human uh that's from 1974 not uh the almost human sci-fi movie that came out a couple years ago that was oh. pretty good and was sort of a throwback because it used practical effects and got pretty good reception not much in november and that's how it is after you know, Halloween in October, you kind Post-Halloween of... Post-Halloween blues. Yes, no kidding. Birthdays in November, and some of these will have already passed because uh, we're recording after November 1st, but uh, have relevance here. November 1st, 1939, Joe Morrow, lovely young woman who we saw at Monster Bash yes. a couple years ago. Uh, November 3rd, 1925, Robert McQuarrie. Don't know particularly why I mentioned him, but it gives me an idea when we were talking about episodes for next year. Uh, how about uh, Count Yorga Vampire and Count yes. Yorga Returns? Yes. That'd be good to do anyway. Uh, he was Count Yorga. A lot of publicity this year for Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, but on November 8th of 1847, Bram Stoker was born. 
Ah. Who, who created Dracula. I'll do a side thing here on Frankenstein. Did you know the 1910 version, the Thomas Edison version, has been restored? I saw and is, that. And apparently it, it's out on YouTube. I watched something several months ago that was, I don't know if it was just a clip of the restoration or what, but... I'm I'm seeing a resurgence of posts about that now. Yeah, I, I, this one skipped me totally, and I saw this in the last uh, week or so, and uh, I I, you know, downloaded a copy off YouTube. Ah, it's amazing what they the print is so much. How long print. is it? It's still about eleven minutes. Okay. So I, I I still think that it's probably missing some, but the print is a million times better hmm. than anything that's been available. So d- search it out. It's free. Yeah. It's on YouTube. I, and, and no watermark whatsoever, which is a big plus. So hmm. anyway, I just, that and, and uh, the Telltale Heart, the 1953 version uh, that was on, uh, as we speak, I think it may still be on the BFI website for free. It was basically somebody had bought it at a garage sale and didn't know what it was and had kept it in the box and two decades later say, what is this? And realizes that it's a lost film that they had been searching for. It's a short film, so it's not a a feature-length film. Bad thing is, though, in order to watch it on the BFI website, you have to have an IP address from the UK. I acquired a copy from a friend, and uh, I don't know where he got it. I didn't ask, but uh, I'm interested in, in checking that out as yeah. well. So I guess that may someday get a release, but um, kind of an interesting lost film that's been rediscovered. Sorry, that's my little side tangent, but nice. you mentioned Frankenstein, and it yep. just got me thinking about that. November 12th, 1970, Harvey Stevens. Uh, he played Damien in The Omen. You mentioned earlier, perhaps yes. we'll do The Omen movies next year. November 16th, 1907, Burgess Meredith. I I mention him just because he's great. Burnt Offerings, Magic. Torture Garden. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's worth, you know, you think of him from Rocky, but he did some great horror movies. Um, Classic episodes of The Twilight Zone. Oh, yes, love it. 11-21-41, John Huff, director. Uh, He's fresh on my mind. I just, on my blog, did the movie The Legend of Hell House, which he directed, and he also directed my favorite Hammer film, Twins of Evil. November 22nd, 1958, Jamie Lee Curtis. In the headlines now for the Halloween reboot sequel Which I guess has generally done well. Yeah, and and you talked about it. I listened to it today. You were on Dread Media talking about the new Halloween movie. I think we both enjoyed it. I think reaction's been a bit mixed. Yeah, you know, I really want to see it again. At I have talked myself over time into not liking it because of all the things, and I wrote about that on Boom Howdy, but now I'm starting to hear other people review it on podcasts like you, and then uh, Genius and Greg did it on Nightmare Junkhead, and it makes me really want to see it again. I think I'll like it more without all the baggage that came with it for me watching it the first time. I think it's kind of like Bohemian Rhapsody is getting a lot of negative reviews. Everyone's praising um, uh, the actor who plays Freddie Mercury, um, but they're really calling out the inaccuracies in the film, which I mentioned when we saw it. Yeah, but I get past that, I think, to enjoy the film. And if you get lost in the muck and mire of some of the things that they do change, which are big... 
some people are, are having a hard time. Yeah, but most people that. don't know that, and that movie is a crowd pleaser. Every person that I've talked to, first of all, wants to see it, and then when they do see it, they've loved it. I haven't talked to anyone other than fellow critics that haven't liked it, and I mean, there's just oh, just, the end. The end is worth it alone. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a not a horror film, folks, no. but. I think it's my favorite film of the year. I have to say it's it's it was I was I enjoyed it from beginning to end, and and that's just an example. The critics don't always know because sometimes you know you, you have been a critic longer than I have. Sometimes we we over analyze a film, and sometimes we overlook the fun aspects of a movie. Ultimately, that's why the film is made. The film is not made. It's made to entertain, and if if it succeeds in entertaining, to me that overshadows whatever faults a film may have. But with some critics, the faults of the film overshadow the fun aspects. And and for me, I've always been the reverse. I find something to like in just about every film yeah. I I see. I really admire that about you. And the thing is, sometimes it's transparent what they're doing. They've there's something that's not natural about the movie. They've manipulated in some way to be crowd-pleasing. But Bohemian Rhapsody didn't have that. It is just genuinely, to me, crowd-pleasing. And, and let's be honest, these biopics, these true stories, if you were actual, you know, if we actually saw events, you know, there not, might not be much of a movie there. You've got to... Well, I think, you know, is it a documentary or is it a, is it a, a film? If it's a documentary, then present me the facts. And if you start tweaking the facts to make the documentary more exciting, then I've got a problem. But if it's a movie, I think you're allowed, within certain degree, to change certain things around because you're telling a story based on real events. But I think you can tweak things around a little bit to to make the story more telling. You know, now if you change something drastic like I don't know, John F. Kennedy doesn't get shot or something like that, then that's a problem, right? But if you're tweaking just a few things around to make it, you know, more entertaining, then I think you're fine. And I think that's the difference is that, yes, even though this was based on a real event, it's not a documentary. If you want a documentary on Queen, they're out there and you can get all the facts presented in A, B, C, D, black and white fashion. This is meant for entertainment purposes, and it did that. It knocked it out of the park, you know, multiple times. So yeah, In my review for Boom Howdy, I said, you know, I don't know Freddie Mercury. I don't know what really happened in his life. But the character of Freddie Mercury in this movie and the way he was portrayed is just very compelling and very entertaining. This has been the <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody podcast. <laughs> All right, two more birthdays. Got to mention uh, November twenty third, eighteen eighty seven, the great Boris Karloff, King Karloff, and then same day, but in nineteen thirty, Riku Browning. Uh, again, we started birthdays with someone from Monster Bash. We end with someone from Monster Bash, Still the creature from the Black Lagoon. Still yes, with us, the and surviving has Universal not Monster, been given some of the recognition that. He needs to have while he's still alive. That, that bothers me. Anniversaries, movies that came out in November over the years. November 3rd, 1954, Gojira. So Godzilla was born in Japan in 1954. November 8th, 1978, Magic. It's one of those movies I mentioned with Burgess Meredith. And here's a topic for next year, Ventriloquist Dummies. 
oh, movies. God. I'd love to watch Dead of Night again. Yeah, I don't have that movie, but that's I don't an either. Ex- that's an excellent movie. And that's yeah. actually actually I looked for that a while ago, and it is hard to find on DVD. Uh, Magic's been a long time. I uh, love I've Magic. Seen that. Watch that over and over. Um, I, t- I did see Goosebumps a few weeks ago. Uh, which has the, the dummy in it. Uh, actually, you know, that's a guilty... I don't know. No, not a guilty pleasure. No pleasures. I really enjoyed that movie. I, you know, it's... Yeah, it's ain't more for kids, but sometimes you want something a little more lighthearted. Carla had seen it. She says, I can't believe you haven't. And I said, well, you know, it came out, I think, three years ago. It just... No one wanted to go see it. I don't know. If you get a chance to see it, see it. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed it. But I didn't see the first one. Will I be able to no, understand No, I'm talking about the happening. first one. Oh, That's oh, the oh, first oh. one. I have not seen the second, gotcha. which apparently has nothing to do with the first one, which now makes me not really want to see the second because mm. I really like the first. Okay. November 11th, 1940, Devil Bat. Another Devil Bella Bat. Lugosi. November 14th, 1964, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. And then let's end up with three November Frankenstein anniversaries. The 21st in 31 was the classic Frankenstein with Boris Karloff. The 23rd in 1959, I was a teenage Frankenstein. And then the 28th in 1973, Frankenstein, the true story first aired on television. And we, of course, had a big episode about Frankenstein, the true story with Sam Irvin. Who is still... Getting people to take pictures with that magazine. <laughs> yes. My God, get that man a job in marketing. Yes. The TV Terror Guide, again, being in November, not much, especially compared to October, but uh, I've got the full Sven schedule for us this month. Uh, Gargoyles was on Saturday. Uh, this Saturday, the 10th, uh, The Tingler, and surprise. The 17th, The Gorgon. And the 24th, Mr. Sardonicus. You know, speaking of November, it makes me think. Remember when Wizard of Oz used to play at Thanksgiving time? Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people talk about Thanksgiving is when they watched King Kong and Son of Kong and Mighty Joe Young. And uh, I have done that a few years. You know, I've never had that growing up, but I've kind of done that a few years in the past where I was like, yeah, I'll watch King Kong around Thanksgiving. And I may do that this year to introduce Carla to that. She's never seen the original. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, I was like, oh, we've got to do that. So, uh, and I know that Steve Turek and, and uh, Derek did March of the Wooden Soldiers. And to me, I do, I know a lot of people watch that around Thanksgiving as well. It's been a few years since I've seen that. And I love Laurel and Hardy. So, I don't know. We're talking November movies, and it just made me think that yeah. uh, people have traditions around Thanksgiving. And so, I don't know. Let us know on the Facebook page what your Thanksgiving horror film traditions are. There may be some others out there besides King Kong or March of the Wooden Soldiers, which is not a horror film, but it's got some horror elements in it. Well, but- and uh, John Kitley from Kitley's Crypt does a turkey day around Thanksgiving where <laughs> it's a marathon of bad horror movies. The Giant Claw. Yes, it's a, yes. Uh, Yeah, so, yeah, let us know. Let us know what your uh, Thanksgiving traditions are related to horror films. Uh, Let us know. And on Turner Classic Movies, just a couple to mention. Not particularly horror, but their star of the month is Glenda Farrell, who I've talked about over and over. She's from my hometown of Enid, Oklahoma. Only horror movie she was really in was Mystery of the Wax Museum. They played that and some of her other movies Monday night. And I think on subsequent Mondays, they'll be playing other Glenda Farrell movies. She's fantastic. I just love her. On November 17th, 
on TCM Sisters from 1973, Margot Kidder. We talked about that in our Margot Kidder episode. And on November 24th, The Blob from 1958. Always got to mention when The Blob is going to be on. That is it for new business. Richard, what's new business in your creative life? What else are you working on? Well, you know, we wrapped up the 31 days of Halloween, and it was uh, a lot of fun. A lot of new movies watched. We got a chance to see a lot of Euro horror, uh, a lot of Paul Nashi, a lot of Santo films. So and there were some revisits for me and first time viewings for Carla. But all in all, there was a lot of new stuff watched, and I really enjoyed it. As we finished kind of ahead of time, we wrapped up Halloween with a lot of Universal classics, some of which Carla has seen, but some of which she hasn't. Um, we've been making our way through the Frankenstein series. She had seen the first two last year, but hadn't seen any more. So that's always fun, kind of watching and getting her comments and reaction the first time viewer. And she loves those old movies. So um, especially when the guy gets the girl at the end of the film. So as far as the blog goes, you know, that post Halloween let down, come down, whatever. Um, typically, November is a pretty quiet month. Uh, I, I sometimes will pick up a little bit in December, but November is a breather for me. So um, I do have some reviews coming up over at uh, the other podcasts that I do. Dread Media, uh, as you mentioned, Halloween. Uh, there's a tourist trap review that is going to be coming up at some point. Yes, the Leaf Blower Massacre 1 and 2. Not something we'd cover here, but uh, you know what? When you get a copy of a film and someone says, hey, can you check it out? I said, sure, I'll do that. I'm terrified now. I'm scared, but uh, that'll be fun. Uh, over at the uh, uh, Mimiverse Audio Cast, I, I will be doing something for December as well. Kind of quiet. I don't really have any plans for the rest of the month over at the blog. Kind of thinking about maybe doing a hunchback compare and contrast between the 23 version with Lon Chaney, which we saw on Halloween night, and uh, the 39 version with Charles Lott. And that will may come up sooner than later. But other than that, just kind of getting caught up on TV shows and, and yeah, just kind of breathing a little bit. What about you? I'm back to my regular features on the blog. So we've got a Monday movie of the week. Uh, we're playing on Wednesday the Hump Day Headlines game. That stumped me this week. I'm drawn. Really? I'm surprised. You know, and sometimes those things are just staring at you in the face and like, oh, yes. And then other weeks I'm like, oh, please, please. I, I, I'm i drawing a blank on this yeah. one. I, yeah, I'll so kick myself, I'm sure. You, you, you see them in the movies, the spinning headlines that come at you and it stops and it, you know, recaps what's happened or, or whatever. Where do you get those from? Is there a... When I watch, this is so anal, but when I'm watching a movie and I see it, I pause it and I just take a picture. Wow, that's, you could do a website, you know (laughs) Well, I've mentioned before, I think there should be a book of, you know, make the pages look like actual newspapers with these headlines and these stories. I think that would be awesome. Wow. No one else do it. I'm claiming it here. (laughs) But anyway, just once a week, I do one of those headlines. I feel... I feel like some of them are obvious and some of them are hard. Like, I've done some that no one has gotten, so the next week, it's, like, really easy. Like, I and I just, there's fun. I loved the one from Amazing Colossal Man where it's obvious because these giant hands are holding this teeny yes, paper. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of fun. But, yeah, I would have thought last week's would not have been hard. So the, tomorrow, this is a Tuesday, on Wednesday, there'll be another one. 
very simple. You, you got to read beyond the headline, but if you read the story, you'll figure it out. Anyway, those are fun. Had a great month with other people participating. Thank you, Richard, for writing a day. That was fun to have guest bloggers. Plus, it made it easier for me. You cheated. Uh, you no, cheated. No, no, no. So that's it, really. No, no other projects going on at the moment. We're waiting for the pictorial history of the Cinefantastique to come out. That's from the latest book from uh, the We Belong Dead group over in the UK. Got a couple pieces in that. I think it may be out by Christmas time. He's been showing uh, pictures of the proof copy on Facebook. It's just another big, gorgeous, colorful book. Those are wonderful books. Yeah. Uh, that's it for me. Would you like to tell us what we're doing next time? You know, with sugar plums and fairies <laughs> dancing around and ho, ho, ho and stuff, we thought it's time for a wonderful Cohen Christmas. We'll be taking a look at the heartwarming tale, the It's Alive trilogy. Why not? You know, that's that's what we that's our gift to you. Um, I just had a perfectly sinful thought that's gonna send me <laughs> burning to hell. But I, I looking at the box right there and I see a crib and you know, somebody else was born oh, in a crib in I, December, you know what? so I uh, knew you were gonna go there as soon as you said that. So if you're going, forgive I'm going me, there please. as well, yes. Forgive me, please. Um, be perfect time for lightning bolt to yes. special effect. Okay, we're doing the It's Alive trilogy, maybe if we're still here next month. Uh, it's Alive, It Lives Again, and Island of the Alive. Now, I saw It's Alive a gazillion years ago. I saw it on VHS back in the late 80s in that big green cover. Yep, from Warner Clamshell. And I did see It Lives Again, too. I've never seen Island of the Alive. And you know what? It's been so long, I can't tell you anything about those first two films. Yet I've got a a glorious three Blu-ray set sitting on the shelf just waiting to be christened. <laughs> How about that? Anyway, um, well, that's what we'll be covering. Uh, and you know, I think we mentioned this last time. There is an, a remake of It's Alive, which we probably won't have time to get to like the island of dr moreau this week but we could offer that as extra credit for anyone that wants to watch the remake and uh, give us a comment or two yeah, on that because i've never even heard of the remake so yeah. if you if you want to see it let us know we def i know i won't have time to go see it uh i think after three films of it's alive i will probably i don't know you know maybe i want to explore more i'm actually looking forward to, to this trilogy i think it'll be fun and for those of you worried, like I said, you might be getting something extra. We might be going something a little more Christmassy. But for the next episode in the first part of December, it's going to be a Cohen Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Hey, everybody. This is Jeff. I'm going to interrupt here real quick. I'm here with two special guests. One is this terrible head cold I have. The other is my sweetheart, my golden retriever, Fanny. She's going to keep me honest as I draw names for the winners of our contest. We are giving away three prizes. The first is last year's Christopher R. Mim movie, Demon with the Atomic Brain. Drawing, drawing, drumroll, please. The winner is Rob Kelly. Rob, we will private message you and then let us know where to send that. Second place, this year's Christopher R. Mim movie, Guns of the Apocalypse. Drawing paper and 
Chris Franklin. Congratulations, Chris. Again, private message you. Tell us where we can send this to you. And finally, our grand prize, the Boris Karloff Collection. His four Mexican movies put all together on one disc. Our winner is Jonathan Angarola. Congratulations, Jonathan. I think we have your address. Nevertheless, we'll private message you. Thank you, everybody that played. Look forward for other contests in the future, and we'll get back to the show to say goodbyes. Thanks. couple quick things. Please remember, give us feedback on the Facebook group page or by calling 616-649-CLUB. And also, I just checked, and if you could find it in your hearts to give us a rating on iTunes, that would be great. We actually have two reviews, which I had not looked at before now. Uh, One of them has some constructive feedback that we should talk about. But other than that, please, other people, give us us a rating. And I think how that helps us, like if I search now on iTunes for the podcast, under ratings, it says not enough, you know, to give a, a rating. So I don't know how many you need to get, but help us out. Give us a rating so that it shows... Uh, there in iTunes when people search for the podcast. That would be your Christmas gift to us, and we'd really Absolutely. appreciate it. That it? I, well, I guess all this, I'll, you know, even though there's not a lot happening this month, I, I guess I neglected to say that uh, you can find me at kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Yep, and I'm at Classic Horrors Club. Classic Horrors dot club. <laughs> um, and you can email there, classichorrors.club at gmail.com. And then more modern reviews you can find at boomhowdy.com. All right. I think we're done. Call it to a close? Call it to a close. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Take care.